Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. I'm an oceanographer, and on this podcast, I like to have long, informal conversations with folks whose work intersects with climate in some way. I really like being a scientist. I like working in the field that I work in, and I wanted to give my colleagues an opportunity to just talk, just to share a bit about their perspective, about their science, and about their lives. So I started this show, and uh, it has been very rewarding. So thanks for downloading, thanks for listening, thanks for tuning in, however you are accessing this. Um, this week, it was my real pleasure and an honor, really, to sit down with Professor David Marshall. Uh, Professor Marshall is a physical oceanographer over at the University of Oxford, and he works in fluid dynamics of global ocean circulation from very small scale, from meters to global, from days to millennia. And uh, one of the things that is uh, really nice and somewhat unique about his approach is that he uses uh, a hierarchy of models to address his scientific questions that he's interested in, all the way from simple pen and paper models to computational models that you need to run on high-performance supercomputers and observations. He really tries to use the full uh, gamut of possible data available to him. Um, just really quickly, you can check out, he has a nice web page, marshallocean.net, where you can read about his projects, the papers that he's been publishing, his group, his teaching, uh, adventures in teaching. And uh, you can also learn about his Brompton writing. And this is one thing that really impressed me. He rode his Brompton all the way from Oxford to Cambridge, he came all the way here to, to Cambridge to record this interview, which I really appreciate, and also to see um, one of his colleagues and former uh, postdoc mentees, uh, David Monday. And uh, yeah, so he, he got on his Brompton, which is, if you're not familiar with it, Brompton is this small, relatively small bicycle that you can fold up, like if you needed to take it on a train or something, you could do that. And uh, yeah, he biked all the way from Oxford to Cambridge, uh, took several hours, and uh, stayed in town for a couple of days. Uh, it was really nice having him around, and it was really uh, very nice having a chance to talk with him for a good couple of hours on, uh, I think it was a Tuesday morning. So uh, thanks, for, thanks, Professor Marshall, for coming all the way to Oxford to have a chat with me. So again, marshallocean.net. You can also find Professor Marshall on Twitter, at dmarshallocean, and uh, he's very active on there. He uh, shares a lot about what he's doing and a lot about his thoughts and plans. David is a musician as well. You can read on his marshallocean.net website about his uh, jazz music. He uh, plays the piano. He likes to improvise. He talks about this um, online jazz improvisation course that he took that really made a big impact on his, on his playing and on his approach to music. And during his time here in Cambridge when he was visiting, he even did join a jazz jam session, uh, and he talks about that really briefly. So, yeah, during the chat, we talked about uh, music and creativity, uh, music science and creativity more specifically, and how both uh, music and his oceanography, both in, in both of those endeavors, uh, he needs a lot of creativity. So he needs to be able to find it and draw on it. And we talk about that process of finding your scientific and musical creativity, which is so important uh, in both of those arenas. In terms of the science, we talked a bit about geometric which is a project that he has. Um, it's a, an approach to parameterizing the effect of turbulent 
mesoscale eddies, which are sort of like ocean weather, as we've said on this podcast before, but on a much smaller scale. So geometric is Professor Marshall's push into that world and to trying to get a better representation of the effect of those small-scale eddies, small-scale oceanic weather on large-scale properties of the ocean and their implications for climate. So we talked a bit about that. I'm on Twitter at, at Dan Jones Ocean and the podcast, I maintain a, an account for the podcast as well, at Climate SciPod. Uh, as you probably know, because you're listening to this, you can find us on many different platforms via Anchor. And if I just click on the uh, link here, um, I can check and see what platforms are available now. Um, something called Breaker. I don't even know what half of these are. Uh, Google Play Music, Overcast, Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public. So um, thanks to Anchor for doing the distribution, for providing the distribution work on all that. Apparently there are podcast apps that you can use to listen to podcasts uh, in a really sped-up fashion. And uh, I have received the feedback that um, sometimes this podcast is a little bit harder to understand when you listen to the really sped-up version. So uh, maybe maybe slow it down a little bit. If, if you can't understand anything that we're saying, maybe try slowing down bits and pieces of it. Um, but who am I to tell you how to listen? You can listen however you want. I shouldn't be attempting to influence you in that way. Yeah, okay, without um, me going on any further, let's go ahead and get into it. Professor David Marshall, Professor of Oceanography at the University of Oxford. Thanks again for joining me, Professor Marshall, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Last night, late, late last well. night. Yeah, how was the how was the jazz thing? I did a jazz jam. Yeah, it was great fun actually. Yeah, last night they're all different, slightly different, but this one was this one was pretty good fun. They're very welcoming as they always are. Somewhere in town, somewhere in Cambridge. It here? was in town, Duke of Cambridge. Duke of Cambridge. Okay, is another is that a regular thing that they do? They have regular apparently it's every Monday. Every Monday. Okay. In fact, I got invited to another jam tonight, but we're going out to dinner. Mm, apparently right. tonight's is the serious one. So you're pop- oh, tonight's yeah. the serious one. So you're yeah, you're in demand. Not. No, I'm not in demand. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't say that. No, but okay. it's, yeah. but it's nice, you know. You can go to you can go to a new town, look up your if there's anything on, join in, and by the end of the evening, you you've met a few people. Nice, yeah. It's always very welcoming. I'm just gonna get a pen real quick. Yeah. Was, yeah. Here we go. Right over here. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing this. Yeah, I'm glad you're. I'm Welcome. glad you're here. And thanks for coming all this way. Uh, over from Oxford <laughs> to have a chat. You're very welcome. I mean, I, I no seriously, Dan. I mean, I listened, as you know, to the very first ones you did, oh. and um, I think it's a great idea. <laughs> oh, I've enjoyed you. listening to all of them. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad. I often put them on in the background when I'm at work. Yeah, you uh, learn all sorts of interesting things. Yeah, about people you do know, but things you didn't know about them, and then about people you didn't know. Yeah, people you know, people but you, you feel you know, know a little better after you've listened. Yeah, after they've had a chance to talk and mm. just a chance to you know expand on some of their ideas, yeah. whether it's about science or something in, yeah. in academia in general, or the kind of academic culture. Well, yeah, thanks, and you've always been 
a big supporter of the podcast. And I really appreciate that. That has that's been one of the things that has kept me going is that I know there's somebody listening and you know I can I can see there's there are people who are listening but it's nice to know it's nice to have somebody specific in my head I was going to say it's a lot of work I know because I know Michael White did has done quite a number of podcasts yeah. and he's winding his up now I think and um oh, is he stopping yeah he's stopping it is a lot of work to keep going mm. and um, but I you know I'd encourage you to do it thanks yeah and I think especially in a few years time when we look back Mm. You know, you're, these will be a real resource. Mm. Um, you know, the so I also, I mean, the last two or three years, I've really got into the history of the subject. Yeah. Um, so it'd be great to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, there's a great um, documentary that was made in 1974, released in 1974, on the mode experiment. Oh, I can really? share these with you afterwards. So, yeah, please. So um, I'd heard about this when I was a grad student, but um, for whatever reason, a few years ago, we got motivated to seek it out and found it on YouTube. It's quite well mm. hidden, actually. Hidden on YouTube. Um, well, at least last time I looked, I couldn't find it again, so maybe it's been <laughs> taken down. I think it was NSF-funded, but it's, it's narrated by Henry Stommel and it's got many oh. of the great, you know, the big players Oh, in the great. field, and it, it's just fascinating to see these people in action. When we release this, we should definitely put a link to that. You know, since yeah, since I'm not sure. It. I'm not sure. I know. Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure it is on the web at the moment. Mm. Oh, um, but I have. You know, I have my copy that I've yeah. shared fairly widely oh, with people. Yeah. People could get in touch and ask me if they want a copy. Can you Maybe. remind me what the mode experiment was? So the mode experiment was the Mid Ocean Dynamics Experiment. Yeah. I think it was. Okay. Is that the the acronym? Um, but basically, the the goal of this experiment was to find an ocean eddy and right. to observe it. Um, so I mean, it's hard to imagine now, looking back. But there was this big big debate in the the sixties: was the ocean turbulent? And yeah. to someone who works on fluid dynamics and knows about <laughs> Reynolds numbers, you know, I mean, this the ocean should be so far into the turbulent regime as indeed it is that it seems baffling to me that this was ever discussed. But um, And I think when you watch the documentary, it's pretty clear that quite a large number of those players were pretty convinced the ocean mm. was turbulent. But they, they go out trying to find an ocean storm, they describe yeah. it as an, a network of ships, um, floats. Mm. Um, and it's a multinational program, and that's one of the fun aspects, watching the American ships, the British ship, Russian ship. Mm. And it was uh, before... So you said it was released in the 70s, so I guess it was before yeah. the satellite era, so oh, we didn't have, yeah, there were no snapshots of sea absolutely. surface light from, yeah. from satellite, and which tells you right away how yeah, and it's Yeah, and it's great fun, you know, watching the characters of the day. So Alan Robinson was clearly in his prime mm. and was driving a convertible car, mm. throwing his float into, onto the back seat. And, um, Scientist in convertible cars. Yeah, there's it's um, not an there's a very young Jim McWilliams, a young Carl Winch, who's just the same as Carl Winch today. Oh, yeah? Um, there's Walter Monk, who's already a senior figure in the field, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that's so must right. have been in his fifties. Yeah, but of course, just turned a hundred, so still going. Um, young Peter Rhymes, Francis Brefferton, someone I didn't meet, who, but you really mm. get to know in this as the theoretician who goes yeah. to sea for the first time. I remember watching um, an old documentary. Uh, I think it was from the fifties or sixties that had Walter Monk in it, and it was the experiment where they were trying to 
track yeah. ocean waves across the waves across Pacific the Pacific. Basin. Yes, yeah. yeah. So I have that documentary too. It's yeah. also wonderful. It's it's amazing to watch because they talk about you know using pressure recorders that basically punched something into a little tape, and then That's they right. would have to take the tape and read <laughs> from the dots on the tape. They would have to That's right. figure out what the time series of the pressure was from each location. Yeah. Um, yeah, the doc was definitely like a product of its of its time. You know, there wasn't a lot of diversity featured in the documentary. Let's let's put it that way. You know, it was yeah. Very, so in the seventy four documentary, you know, they they actually talk about how things are changing and mm. immediately cut to a, a picture of a female PhD student on the boat. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. But I mean, the thing that really struck me was the the health and safety was just non-existent. <laughs> I mean, you see a guy in his swimming trunks and nothing else leaning overboard, you know, mm. or hanging onto a rope trying to launch some instrument. And everyone was just like, yeah, this is fine. And this there's a point luck. where they're recovering a mooring and they actually talk in a very matter-of-fact way about how this is dangerous work and although you're not meant to pull it in with your bare hands, often you have no choice right. and people lose fingers. Yeah, and, the, you know, obviously that would not happen. The safety, yeah, the safety manager here at Bass talks about a shift in the culture in the early 80s, how kind of before the early 80s they just accepted a certain level of people dying and injuries and they just kind of chalked it up to like, wow, this is dangerous stuff. And then he, the way he put it, uh, Stephen Miller, he, uh, he said, you know, people don't have to get injured and they don't have to die. We can think about ways to prevent this or at least to mitigate that risk so yeah at some point there has been a big culture shift in terms of yeah. uh, maybe maybe people don't have to lose limbs and things uh, to do science maybe they we can think don't. about you know <laughs> yeah uh, i think we're in relatively low danger of losing limbs uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the sort of stuff that we typically do um yeah so the uh you know as, as you know we can go any direction we like you know i have a set of things that we could talk about but it's well not, you're in it's, charge so why don't an, you start it's not an agenda right it's not a, it's not an agenda um so what have you been up to lately? What sort of things have you been working on, I don't know, over the past week or month? You just finished up your term as head of atmospheric, oceanic, and planetary physics That's at correct, the yeah. Department uh, of Physics, physics in yeah. So Oxford. It, yeah, so it's not a head of department role. It's a head of sub-department. Okay, sub-department. Which right. um, is significant because it means that my responsibilities in terms of managing a budget were at a much lower level. Mm. So I don't want to pretend for a minute it was like a full... Um, head of department role. They, right. You know, okay. physics has a forty-six million pound turnover. That's a major, major job. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I was responsible for a much, much smaller um, budget mm. than that. But on the other hand, you know, um, AOPP, as we call it, was a group of about uh, it's a group of about a hundred people mm. in all. And what's nice is you uh, at that size, you you can pretty much know everybody in the department. Yeah. So I think it's very important for the social cohesion, and also just to set. The, you know a healthy work culture um so you know that's probably what i'm most proud of is i think mm. you know people tell me they they enjoy working in aopp they, they gave me a lovely card actually last week and you know it's the comments people write that mean the most what can you do if you want to promote a healthy work culture what was your idea for that um i think well it's a mix of different things i think when you come in i mean i when I took over, I guess I'd only been in Oxford for, I say, only about five or six years. Mm. Oh, yeah. um, and I, I, there were some things that were working well. There were other things that was obvious to me needed to change. Mm. So I think everyone brings in different ideas. I think it's important not to do the job for too long, actually. So you early on, you do the obvious things. Um, for me, it was clear that we weren't making enough use of the resource available from the postdocs and students. Mm. Um, to to get involved in organising, 
Um, so, for example, bringing in the postdocs to organize the seminar program. Yeah. Um, the retreat we'd have once a year, which potentially was a great event, but, but you know, people didn't look forward to it because it was quite a, it was quite a tiring event. And, oh, really? you know, now people love it. But again, you know, giving control to the postdocs and students. Was it tiring because of the work that it took to organize it? No, it was it just or? the schedule was too, mm. too dense and it was too, it was just too academic for my liking. And, mm. you know, I think if people enjoy what uh, an event, then they're going to get more out of it. So it was yeah. a real opportunity, not just to to have a series of talks in a meeting style, but also step back and, and and talk in a very candid way about what could change in the sub department. And I think people, if they're asked those questions, start to feel more ownership. Yeah, for sure. And it sounds like you tried to include more folks and create a sense of community, mm. you know, as opposed to just having it be a set of offices that people file into Absolutely. and do their work in and leave. Yeah. Uh, and I've certainly, I've been in both kinds of places. I've been in more inclusive mm. places that make you feel like you're part of a yeah. community and places that maybe didn't do that as effectively that felt a bit more isolating. And it makes a huge difference, right? It's just, I wouldn't say night and day, but it does make a huge psychological difference. If you look forward to going into your office, if you look forward to seeing people and talking with them, you just feel more plugged into the whole thing, and you're—I feel like you're—you do a better job. Yeah, and I mean, you know, a lot of—I absolutely agree. And, and and actually, I mean, one of the big changes, which was partly a, a stroke of luck, that the estates department offered to carpet the entrance way and the staircase hmm. in our building and I, I'm still not quite sure I understand how or why this happened but they but they came and um, and we gave them some very nice feedbacks, people were very happy about this and hmm. and I think it became clear pretty quickly that, that maybe they hadn't received so much good feedback oh, really? I don't know, because the state's departments I think people, <laughs> it's like computing people tend to complain yeah, and yeah. perhaps forget to say <laughs> you know, when they're, when they're <laughs> compliment right. the good things I was um, yeah. but you know um, we, I, I know we, we ended up um, suggesting maybe they, it would be nice to continue and uh, well, a couple of years later, we got pretty much the whole building recarpeted, mm. and and that made a massive difference to the feel of the place. Mm. And again, I think people just felt it it improved the, the the general look of the environment. It made the buildings, which was really a well, you've been to AOPP. Mm-hmm. It's a series of four or five buildings. Yeah, yeah. Um, but having that uniform, you know, wall color and the carpet, mm. so it felt the warmer. It it just makes it feel more of an integrated. Yeah, unit. So, so it's silly little things like that make a huge difference. It is, but that's but, like human psychology is a real thing you have to think about when you're thinking about. But like I, I learned, you know, work. that what you really have to do is seize the opportunities when mm. they're there, and you know, in, in a sense, you know, sniff sniff out the opportunities too. Yeah. Um, mm. But I mean, a lot of a lot of things come down to to money. To be honest, and um, a big challenge I had when I took over is there was very there was no headroom in the budget. So, mm. so so trying to cut back a bit on some of the expenditure to make enough headroom so we could then so I could just say yes when someone had a good idea. Mm. Um, I wanted to run with it. That, I think that made a huge difference too. Yeah. yeah. So. This might be a little bit of a hard question, but it's something that comes to mind, and I think that it's on, on people's minds. So as the head of the sub-department, were there things that you were able to do when it's time for somebody to go, when it's time for them to leave? How can you help them 
you know, is there a responsibility on our departments to kind of help them transition out, whether they're you know, leaving your department or leaving academia to go you know, into the private sector? Uh, do you know what I mean? That transition period, I think, can be difficult for so some So we're talking as postdocs, students? I think so, or wherever the yeah. kind of yeah. jumping off point. Because I think there can be, um, and I might be projecting a little bit here, but I think there can be a scary uh, point where you know, you, you've been so used to being in the kind of academic culture, you know that very well, you've been in that your whole life, and now there's a point where it might be time to you know, seek opportunities elsewhere and to do other things. And I think one of the things I, I wonder about is... Um, where, where are people going, you know, when they're going outside of academia? What kind of opportunities are they exploring? I feel like I have a very poor sense of that. And are there things that we should be doing as an academic culture to kind of help them with that transition and to help them feel like that's that's fine and, and good and positive? As a, yeah, because yeah, I think there's a tendency for... Um, well, I, I don't want folks to feel like that's a failure, right? Because it's, yeah. it's not a failure. The... I, <laughs> I mean, I mean, first thing to say is I'm not sure it's a, I, I would have seen it as a role that I was... Re- mm. I don't think it was my role to be re- directly responsible right, right. for yeah, providing that, that. that yeah. mentoring as a head of sub-department, as a head of group to my own group, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, right. But having said that, it is my role um, to, to then put in place the mechanisms to ensure that people are given that advice across the department. So I'm just thinking in physics as a whole, and I think that's probably the right place to the right level at which to address this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we did set up a. I mean, I was involved in the. I chaired the first Athena Swan initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, so Athena Swan is a program that was originally conceived to try and help women um, in the in the sciences. So, for example, in physics, 22% of students are female. Um, it's the same percentage as at A level, and I think fifteen percent of our professorial staff in physics were female. Mm. So there is an issue. I mean, the biggest issue actually is getting girls to do A level. But we want to. But um, we decided pretty early on in physics that really this shouldn't be just about women. It should be about good practice, mm. equality, diversity. But it was also about giving good career advice. So one of the things we did set up was a postdoc network across physics. Mm. And, um, I mean, if I'm being honest, I think there's a long way to go still. It's mm. not quite what it should be yet. Yeah. Um, but at least, the, you know, that network is in existence. And we always had in mind one of its roles would be to, to, to run events to give exactly the sort of advice mm. that you were describing. Yeah. I think when you're working at a department level with, a, you know, it's 130 faculty in physics, so it's a huge big community. Yeah. Um, you've you've got enough people who have graduated recently and gone into every sector you can imagine mm. that you really could do a very nice event, I think. Yeah. Um, bring people back who are, mm. can give good advice. I'd yeah, be lying if I said I think we're doing a good job on that, but it's certainly <laughs> on the radar still. Yeah, bringing people yeah. back, that sounds important, yeah. right? Cause that and I remember when I was at MIT as a postdoc, actually, the, um, there was a group, I think it was called Women in Science, who ran a... A series of workshops, but it was it was very progressive, and they were open to everybody, women and men. Um, and I remember going to a couple of those where they talked about um, getting a faculty position, getting funded, and indeed opportunities outside academia. Mm-hmm. And they were fantastic events. So mm. I think it's a work in progress in my department. Yeah. Um, and although I'm, you know, I've stopped now as head of AOPP, I'm not withdrawing completely from the management in physics. Right. So. Right. 
yeah, I probably shouldn't say publicly yet what my role's going to be, but I'm yeah. going to have a role. Yeah. Do you mind if I just inflate your ego for a second and talk about... <laughs> what I mean is um, say nice things about you. <laughs> so I, so I think well, uh, you've been somebody who has uh, inspired me in different ways, scientifically. And part of the way that you've inspired me and uh, is that you get so excited about the science that people are doing and it, you know you, you seem to appreciate it on a creative level yeah. and the, I remember uh, I think it was at EGU or something after uh, we had both watched a talk by Chris Wilson and I, rem- I still remember what you said you, you turned to me and you said that's classic Chris like you had really liked something that he had done and, and appreciated it and you had seen the creativity in it and um, you know I, I think there's some parallels between your uh, appreciation of music and the creativity that you explore in music and the way that you approach your science as well you know the way that you um the way that you appreciate the creativity in that endeavor also and so i was thinking about that parallel and i thought i would ask you like um is there anybody who's like you're really excited about their science right now or is there is there work are there bodies of work that you're really excited about that's that you think is uh, engaging and creative that that is inspiring you? Um, there's always stuff that I, I find inspiring. Actually, you just gave a great example of a young, mm. underappreciated scientist mm. there yeah. in Chris Wilson. I mean, both Chris's at Liverpool, Chris Hughes too, always yeah. does amazingly exciting things. And, and actually, I'm going to, this may sound like a bit of self-promotion, but it's not at all. Um, Jeff Stanley, a PhD student of mine who's just graduated I think has written a couple of wonderful papers that are going through review at the moment. Mm. And I can say this without being arrogant, because I can say honestly I had pretty much zero input into the science mm. okay. yeah. in these papers, and for that reason I'm not a co-author on the papers, mm. or would have refused mm. to be a co-author. Um, but I think he's basically come across the way we will define what's known as neutral density oh, yeah? for the next 10 years. And, um, and I know Trevor McDougall was a reviewer of... Mm the first of those papers and has got very excited about the paper too yeah. so um so you know so that excites me um i mean there are, there are a number of people i think you know the probably the person who's excited me the most in a sustained way over the last 20 years um probably be jim mcwilliams um mm-hmm. the number of times i've read a jim mcwilliams paper and and afterwards thought oh god that's obvious why didn't i think of that <laughs> Um, and all great ideas are obvious once you've seen them. Yes, because yeah, they're never right. obvious until you see them. Yeah. So, um, hmm. but yeah, no, I'm glad you brought this up. I mean, I love. I think the creative side of the subject is massively underappreciated by by scientists, by teachers, by funders, mm-hmm. um, and it's certainly something I've tried to to um, to to always keep at the centre of, of what I do and and encourage in my in my students. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think everybody needs to, to follow this approach. We need every approach that you can, but you certainly need the creative thinkers. Yeah. And um, and I think you're right. I mean I'm sure I was thinking about this on the way in actually, mm-hmm. realising you know, I should think about what we were going to talk about mm-hmm. today and it was something I was going to bring up too. Um, it goes back to I guess I go back to when I was at school. I mean, I I mean I learned music to play the piano very early on, and then and then subsequently the cornet, and I moved to Flugelhorn, hmm. and went through the at the time I was living in South Wales in the brass band, so in the brass band system there. Um, oh, right. But I think if I'm honest about it, I 
I can't say I loved the the grade system mm. going through the piano grades because I was never very good at practicing and I think my heart wasn't in it. Mm. And then by chance, when I was about, oh, must have been 13, 14, we, we had a very, very good music teacher um, who's gone on to, to, to become a very successful politician in the Liberal Democrat Party, mm. now in the House of Lords. But he'd invited a, a number of jazz musicians to come to the school and then a, cu- a couple of them came back several times. Mm. So, um, so Digby Fairweather, who's quite well known, and Stan Barker, and 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 you know that's how I learned to to play off what we call a lead sheet, where you just see the chords and the tune, and that motivated me to try and figure out harmony myself mm-hmm. at home. So I sort of taught myself a lot of harmony at home, in a very basic level, but but learned to play to play a tune by ear and play basic yeah. harmony at the time by ear. And I, you know, looking back, I think that probably did have an influence then on my science. Hmm. So I've always been a big fan of trying to work things out yourself. Yeah. Rather than, you know, take, learn everything from a, from a book. But of course it's a balance because you, you can't reinvent history quickly. So you need to read. Right. But on the other hand, you need to play a bit. And yeah. so it's, a, it's always a balancing act. You know, you, yeah. you need to know enough so you don't, you don't just waste your time discovering what's already, rediscovering yes. what's already known. That's right. But you need to play enough so that you don't get locked into the same way of thinking that everybody else has. Yeah, and the jazz structure that you were just talking about, the kind of lead sheets, that gives you some room. It gives you some constraints, but it also gives you some room to play around within the, the, big, the, the constraints that are there. Well, the other thing I'd say is, like science, I think actually it's 99% just hard work, to be honest. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, people <laughs> think improvisation's very free, but actually... You know, what do you do? Well, you do it exactly like science. You, you basically listen to the masters of the past and you mm-hmm. imitate. <laughs> um, but this is where the creativity comes in. You then try and cherry-pick the parts you really like. Yes. Um, and when you've mastered them, you suddenly find that you're introducing this into your own plane. And the same, I think it's the same with science. You know, I've always been a fan of summer schools, and, and I think it's not just about the material you talk on a school, because... You, you can't go to a summer school in a week and, and learn the subject in a week. It's no, impossible. No way, yeah. But what you can do is, is go and just see a series of senior scientists speak and you'll see different things, you know, in the different scientists. And, you know, you just cherry pick the bits, the bits you like yeah. try and incorporate them into your own. That's working. right. Yeah, and it, uh, uh, it's interesting that you said the bits that you like because there is some subjectivity in there. There is some yeah. listening to yourself and listening Absolutely. to you know what you find interesting and compelling, and also what you're good at. Yeah, exactly. yeah, and what you're good at, and you know, so for an example, you know, I say thank God someone else finds EOF analysis interesting because I don't. <laughs> but there's nothing wrong with that. You know, other people love it, and yeah. but we've got to do the things we enjoy and the things we're good at, and yeah. recognize what we're less good at. And, it's so funny, isn't it? Because um, you know, having that freedom to look for something in science that you enjoy and that you respond to, it sounds really privileged to talk about, and it is a privilege to get to explore that. But this, on the other side of, of that observation, is the fact that if you don't look for that thing that that really motivates you, if you don't look for those things that compel you, then well, you're probably not going to reach your potential. You're not going to really plug into what gets you excited, and you're maybe not going to be as a dynamic of a, a, a scientist in terms of creating new ways to look at things. So I think that's an interesting kind of distinction that I, I think about sometimes, um, because I, I've spent a lot of time 
you know, over the years trying to find the thing that I like and trying to find the things that I plug into. Uh, and it, it can feel a bit indulgent sometimes, but I know in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, this, this feels indulgent, but I know I have to find those things that excite me or I'm going to have a real hard time trying to do any science. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I, and I think the reality is uh, quite often, you know, in your career, you have actually the day-to-day monotony of what you actually have to do, mm-hmm. whether it's dealing with, with some management situation or writing a proposal that's got very little chance of being funded or, mm-hmm. you know, what yeah. have you. It, yeah. mean, it means that often it's, you know, we're, we're not doing the really exciting work day-to-day. And I've, I've learned it's very important, I think, to try and when you are enjoying what you're doing or you're really getting a kick out of your work, to try and work out what it is that mm. you're doing. And so if you do get mm. into a rut, then to make a conscious effort to try and change something. Yeah, yeah. There's a, you know, um, it's probably about 10 years ago now, I guess, was it? Steve Jobs gave a fantastic speech. I don't know if you know this. At um, a commencement speech at Stanford. Okay. Could, could you watch that? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Kicking the toe. It'll be, uh, it'll, there'll be little yeah. bumps and things. Like um, <laughs> no, there's a commencement speech he gave at Stanford. We can put the link to this up, actually. Yeah. But um, which I think is, um, which I listened to, and I've probably listened to at least 40, 50 times since. Um, you know, Steve Jobs was an interesting character. There were many things I didn't like about Steve mm, Jobs. Yeah. But, um, but this is one hell of a speech and I think the, the story I read I don't know if it's true is that his speechwriter didn't deliver so he actually wrote this speech himself and um, he tells three stories basically it's about joining the dots he talks about how he dropped out of college um, so you know he's there delivering this commencement speech but he dropped out early on yeah not necessarily good general advice but it was but just then, what worked for him but then started dropping into courses that he um, that he really liked, um, and one of those was calligraphy. And he t- talks about how eventually this led to the beautiful fonts on uh, the Apple right. Mac. Yeah. But at the time, he had absolutely no idea how it was going to be useful. But he said, "You know, you just follow your intuition." So he gave himself the freedom to do, do it. That. And then yeah. ten years ago, it came back to him when they were des- designing the Apple Mac. Hmm. So they put beautiful fonts onto the the Mac. And then the second story is about love and loss. So he talks about how he got fired from his own company, Apple, and started out again as a beginner. And it's all about, you know, focusing on what you love doing. You know, what do you do if you've lost everything? And he said he realized that he still loved what he was doing. There you go. So he started anew. And so he, and he said, you know, it, and, and I think this is a very useful lesson, actually, that he entered one of the most creative periods of his life because he was freed from the pressure of being successful and was a beginner again. <laughs> Right. And, you know, that's what I love about music, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm still very much an amateur there, but it's, you know, it's nice to <laughs> to be trying to improve. But the, um, mm. so, you know, he started, um, uh, so, so Pixar and, um, and Next Computer, right. which the software got into Apple, um, ended up being OS X. And then finally, the third story is about death and how he'd been diagnosed with cancer. Right, yeah. And, um, and how this had really, you know, brought home to him the importance of asking yourself, do I really want to do what I'm doing? Right, yeah. And, um, and I think that's the real message. You've got to love what you do and find what you love and keep searching. Yeah, keep looking for it. What are some things that you do to try to carve out that creative space for yourself? Um, there's, you know, silly things like just blocking time in your diary. Yeah. 
<laughs> so I'm, I, I'm not sure I want to give away all my best secrets no, at the moment, but um, we want them all. <laughs> in, the, um, in case some of my colleagues in Oxford Physics are listening. Mm. But, you know, I remember when I was at Reading, I used to do a lot of swimming at the time, and I'd have SW in my diary mm. several times a week, and I never told anyone that was swimming, but I was quite happy to say, sorry, I'm busy yeah. in that block. I think, you know, it's important, um, you know, coming here for a couple of days, yeah. for example. We've started um, these, uh, they're called Shut Up and Write sessions, where it's two hours, um, and whoever's organizing it books the room, and we all go in there, and for 25-minute blocks, you know, there's no email, you're just working on something. You could be writing, or you could be doing some analysis or something, but as long as you're not caught up in the minutia of the day-to-day, you know, emailing and little small business things, that's the point. And we all kind of do it together, so there's a, a bit of a communal element to it, which is nice, and then there's five-minute breaks where you decompress for a minute. So I think it's a similar idea where there's there's time, you explicitly block it off and say, this time is precious, I'm not going to let anything take this over, this is where I will do my creative work and where I'll do my thinking. Yeah, so you do, you do that, that's good. And, Although um, it's not so easy in practice to say, I'm going to do my creative work at this time. I mean, yeah, often, that's right. you know, that's you're right. in, it's the that's most right. bizarre thing, like you, you're in the shower or actually cycling, I find, is great for creative thinking. Yeah. You don't realize you're doing it, but then suddenly you have an idea. That's, that's how it works, right? I think it is you, how it works. You, you spend maybe the time you've blocked off, you spend thinking about it and reading and doing a little writing and maybe a little analysis, and then, like you said, forget about it, and your subconscious will keep working on it, and... Um, things will start to bubble up from <laughs> from your yeah. subconscious. Maybe that's why it's so important to plug into the things that you're interested in, because there's something about you know one's brain that is responding to a set of problems, which maybe means your subconscious will be more likely to sit there and and spend time on it. And the other thing I've learned the hard way, but I'm I'm getting slightly better at doing, but still it's a way to go, is just learning to say no to things you don't want to do. Hmm. You know, for example, often you know, there's at the moment I think the funding scene is is very challenging if you want to work on the creative side of the subject. Yes. Um, there's a lot of work to work on, a lot of money available to work on applications to developing nations or an innovation, or the latest trendy topic, which mm. I guess would be machine learning at the moment. So um, guilty, I'm doing yeah, some of that. There's always <laughs> one, and and to some extent, you know, you you have to you have to go where the money is, but. But it is a trade-off, and you, you certainly don't want to overplay that, I think. Yeah. Because you end up, if you end up doing stuff that you really are not interested in doing, yeah. and more to the point, you didn't need to get that money, then well, why are you doing it? Yeah. So I think the key is ask the question, why am I doing this? Yeah. It's very lucky if those two things happen to overlap. If yes. it's a boom season for something that you're like really interested in, that's yeah. very, very fortunate. You cash in. Yeah, 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 that's right. Take advantage of it. Take full advantage. Um, yeah, so I've been doing a bit of the machine learning stuff, but I, I am the bit of it that I've carved out. I am I, I do find really interesting yeah. and I do find exciting. So yeah, I think it's important to important to respect that. The um, yeah, so why don't we talk? Um, I liked our conversation about uh, thinking about the people who you're, you're getting excited about right now. Who are some of your influences as you were you know, going through? And, uh, you said you did your undergrad at Imperial College, right? And and you were doing physics there. Yeah. Um, did. Uh, what did you take away from that? It, what, what were some of the... Were there things that were inspiring in that? Yeah. Um, I mean, like a lot of young physicists, I think I was heavily inspired by Feynman yeah. when I was an undergraduate. I mean, so maybe I'll backtrack a little. I mean, sure, I, I, I think when I was at school, it wasn't clear to me really what I wanted to do. Where did you grow up? I grew up... I mean, I was born in London, mm. North London. It's a place called Oakwood. 
Mm. Um, most people have never heard of Oakwood, but they've heard of Cockfosters, which right. was the last stop on the Piccadilly line, and we were the one before. Before that, okay. So yeah. the evening, <laughs> like the late night trains often stop at Oakwood. Mm. The depot was at Oakwood. But, um, but it was a very nice place. I loved London, and my parents were both civil servants. They moved... My father was relocated to Cardiff when I was 10. Mm. Um, so we moved to Cardiff. And, you know, Cardiff's a very nice city, but I think is, I, right? I always missed London. Mm. I'd say um, as much as I enjoyed living in Cardiff, I always felt an outsider in Cardiff mm. um, and had a craving to go back to London. Um, and and you know, so when I was applying for undergraduate places, I applied... We had this British system, you choose five places. And I think I decided I wanted to do physics, but I wouldn't say it was a passion at that point. Um, it was more that this is what I was good at. And I think it was some question in my mind as whether I should have done mathematics, but mm. I'm glad I did physics. <laughs> at the time, I didn't realise it, but I think I, feel, I think more like a physicist intuitively as a mathematician. In terms of, um, could you expand on that? What, what do you so mean? I, you know, I think in terms of pictures rather than equations, right. maybe. Okay, yeah, you yeah. think if you picture the system, and then you, the mathematical description comes along later, as yeah. opposed to starting with. I the mean, equations. I've learned through collaborations with people like James Madison, who was a former student postdoc of mine, now a very, you know, very talented mathematician, come physicist, I'd say in that order, who's now <laughs> faculty at Edinburgh in mathematics, but. You know, we're very compatible, I think, because he thinks primarily as a mathematician. I think primarily as a physicist. Complementary. You know, I, I could, could sometimes when he writes on the whiteboard, I can tell something's wrong, but I can't tell where he's gone wrong. <laughs> um, but I can tell him that the answer's wrong, and then he'll spot the mathematical error. Because you have an intuitive, <laughs> yeah. have an intuitive sense of picturing yeah. how. And equal, equally, work. you know, his mathematical skills are beyond mine. So I think I'm definitely stronger on the physics as much as I like the mathematics. So I ended up um, applying to Cambridge uh, for natural sciences, which is a strange, you know, it's a, it's a strange system in Cambridge because you have yeah. to, as an undergraduate, you can't just do physics early on; you have to take other subjects. Hmm. Um, and I went to a comprehensive school, albeit a very good one in in Cardiff, but I didn't receive any coaching for the Oxbridge interview. So, oh, right. um, okay. and, and so I had three interviews in Cambridge, and I have to say one of them I, I, I thought went very well, but one of them I really did not enjoy at all. Mm. And um, so I did get an offer, but it was a crazy offer. I think three A's and a distinction in a special mm. paper, which was something you could do in the 80s. Mm. Um, and then two, two or three weeks later, I went to Imperial College for an interview, and... Um, and I just felt at home immediately. Hmm. And um, there were eight of us shown into a room. And the first thing we were told is that you all have an offer of two Cs. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And if you get a better offer, please get in touch. Hmm. And we'll see what we, see can, what do. we can do. We'll match it. So we assume that we'll be your insurance offer at least. And the rest of today <laughs> is why we should be first choice. Hmm. Okay. And, um, and I just... You know, I, I think I was missing London. I really wanted my London kick, yeah. um, and and I found myself hoping that I wouldn't get the grades from Cambridge. And <laughs> and after a week or two of this, I decided this was just ridiculous. I should just accept the imperial offer. So I had a great time in my A levels, no <laughs> pressure at all. And um, the school, I think, thought I was crazy. 
but um, that, that's what I did. I went to London, and people said you'd, I would hate London. No, but you um, lived there, you knew it. Yeah, but they said, they said it was not, you know, I'd left as a 10-year-old. They yeah. said it won't be as you remember it, it won't be fun. And I have to say, I loved every minute of London. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it was a great choice. And um, But moreover, I wasn't, at the time, mature enough, I think, to come to Cambridge. I would have been lost. Coming from a comprehensive school, I would have... I think I would have felt out of my depth here. Mm. Um, and um, That experience must inform your perspective now since you're at Oxford. Well, things have changed, I think, a yeah. lot. There's still a little work to do, but I think it's a very different environment now when you interview mm. to back then. But, but back then, you were certainly at a disadvantage if you were competing against people from private schools that received yes. coaching usually applying in the seventh term of their A-levels, whereas I was applying in the fourth term, so they'd already taken their A-levels. Right, okay. And they'd have a gap here and they'd apply at that stage. Um, That's right. There's a, a culture that if you're not already plugged into the culture and if you don't know what the people conducting the interview will be listening, it was for, as much, listening yeah, for, you know? I think it was as much just fear of the culture, mm-hmm. you know, for me. I wasn't mature enough for it. And, um, and so I fitted in immediately at Imperial, and then to my amazement did exceptionally well that summer in the exams. Hmm. And um, that really came as a shock. You know, I, I didn't see that coming, and that gave me a huge boost. And never quite got to back to that level again. But, um, <laughs> but that gave me confidence, and I started to think maybe I should go into research. And, and it was a three-year program at the time. We didn't have four-year degrees. So the final year of a physics degree if you're a theoretical physicist, it's just great. You learn about classical mechanics, yeah. Lagrangians, Hamiltonians, mm-hmm. you learn about quantum mechanics, general relativity. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have this naive view, and I was one of them, that this is what you will do as a PhD student. And <laughs> you know, the reality is actually very different. It is, um, yeah, for sure. So, um, so in practice, you probably end up, I would have ended up looking at some horrible numerical calculation on a supercomputer that's yeah. very abstract. But I applied for PhDs to do theoretical particle physics, and um, and you know I was thinking about this again recently that I think there were a number of bifurcation points at that in my career at that point because I, I applied to Oxford, my current department, and no complaints about the interview this time that I I just messed it up completely, mm. so I. I completely messed up a question on the uncertainty principle and mm. if you're applying to do theoretical physics that's that's curtain time <laughs> so um so i think that was lucky and but i did get in um to a phd at southampton in physics yeah. and particle physics, in yeah. particle physics and and that's where i went mm. for two days um, so what had happened is I'd taken also an astrophysics course and for whatever reason it was just really badly taught that year mm. the exam was hard and I decided to try and find an easier option and stumbled on atmospheric physics mm. and the mathematics was very similar to what's called plasma physics so, um, yeah. so I thought that's the course I'm going to take the exam in and went along to the lectures by my future PhD supervisor John Marshall it's not related. And this was back at Imperial? At Imperial. Yeah. So, um, so I began to have some doubts that maybe I've made a mistake. I really like this subject and maybe I should do this instead. But when I, over the summer, and especially when I arrived in Southampton, I knew I'd made the wrong choice. Mm, okay. So the Monday afternoon, I called up John and I said, you may not remember me, but I took your atmospheric physics course. Okay. Did quite well in your course. Um, can I... I was wondering if there's any chance... I've made a bad, terrible mistake, and is there any possibility I, I could switch <laughs> this year or next yeah. 
into atmospheric physics, and thankfully someone had not shown up at Imperial for their oh, PhD. Right. And so I went up to see him on the Tuesday, and I think he was a bit... I mean, he said, look, you're clearly qualified, but I'm a bit worried about the commitment that you're showing <laughs> if you want to quit your PhD after yeah, one two, day. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. So, um, And I gather he went into the PhD room and asked the PhD students, what shall I do? I don't know what to do. And, oh, interesting. And yeah, Sonia okay. Legg, who'd started the day before, apparently put a good word, so yeah, just yeah, follow yeah. your instinct. And Thanks, Sonia. <laughs> so, exactly. I don't think she remembers this, but I, I remember <laughs> this. But, um, and so I got offered a place, and the Wednesday morning I quit at Southampton and... The Monday started the period. I have a feeling that it would be harder to accomplish these days. No, <laughs> I think maybe. it happens. Yes, yeah, it, it still happens. Um, it feels like there yeah. are more barrier, more bureaucratic barriers these days, possibly. And the irony is, I mean, this was still a very good intake at Southampton because mm. um, one didn't show up. I quit after two days, mm. but the third student's gone on to be their star graduate. Well, there you go. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> but that's another interesting mm. instance of listening to yourself because yep. you know, as opposed to you didn't just sit in Southampton and feel miserable and try to push through it, you listen to yourself and you said, something is about this isn't right. I clearly have a reckless streak in me where I, <laughs> I plan everything carefully and then suddenly... <laughs> Smash it on off. On a whim, exactly. <laughs> but it's worked out. So. And my poor uh, sister, you know, had, had in the meantime started an undergraduate degree in um, biology at Imperial. And, um, I mean, this was the, these are the days before email. Um, so I, I, I think she didn't even realise that I was going to show up at Imperial and be back, and she saw me across the the, um, <laughs> the canteen. What the hell are you doing here? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm back. I quit. That wasn't right for me. Um, how many? Do you have more siblings? Multiple siblings? Or one, sister. one sister. Yeah. Okay. And um, what's she up to these days? My sister is. Um, she has a family in in the south of England. Yeah. Um, so Sussex, just outside Brighton, north yeah. of Brighton. A place called Linfield, mm-hmm. and you've got a big so family she, too. Oh, sorry, go ahead. You were going to say no. Sorry, um, I've got a family, three kids, yeah. three girls. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I partly had that in the back of my mind when I was asking about you know how do you make sure you carve uh, have enough time to be creative and carve enough time out for yourself. And I would ima- I'd imagine I only have one kid, but even with one, it's pretty challenging to find that find that time. So I guess you really have to be uh, vigilant about carving it out in your calendar. Now, sometime well, during the work day. It gets easier as they get older, mm-hmm. I'd say. Um, and it's a lot of people when... I mean, the first kid is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. The second is a bit more work. And the third, frankly, you haven't got any time. So, yeah, that's right. so it isn't more work because you haven't got time to, to do more work. That's what uh, Matt Maslow at Scripps mm-hmm. said uh, when, he had his, when they had their third kid. He's four, kid. doesn't he, I think. Is he at four now? Three? I don't know. I think it's three. Yeah, three? But yeah. I... Th- I th- uh, yeah, I think he said three, but the way he put it was like, well, at two, you already have no time, so you just add another kid, and you're not losing any time, because you, you, you didn't have any <laughs> to begin with. Yeah, that's right. So the uh, that, that makes me think about, yeah, it's really important to put those dates in your calendar. Yeah, okay, so you started, went back to Imperial to work with John Marshall, and I imagine he was a big influence on you in terms of your... You're thinking and you're to be honest, it was culture you know? shock. I mean, mm. we talked about intuition. I don't think I've ever met anyone who is more intuitive than John. Yeah, um, he would have, still has, what to me always have seen, still seen crazy ideas <laughs> that he could, could kind of half articulate as you know. Uh, well, you know, John. I mean, he's very compelling. Mm. Yeah, you know, he and um, and yet he has this amazing knack 
sometimes an annoying knack of just being right <laughs> for the most but mm. through the most bizarre reasoning and I and um, I mean to someone who had wanted to go into theoretical physics where I imagined everything was rigorous yeah. you know this was a real <laughs> culture shock but again I think it was an important part of my education because it's exactly what I needed at the time which was to discover myself you know the, that actually this was what I was good at doing the more creative side yeah, and that not everything has to be rigorous. You know, you follow your in, your hunches and yeah, that you mm. you follow the intuition and then you look for the rigor later. And yeah. you try to find indeed. Mm. And another person I think who was very influential on me over the, the first ten years of my career is Peter Kilworth, and it was much more of a mathematician than John. But again, I think always um, followed his hunches. You know, I remember him giving a seminar and. Being him being asked the question at the end, why on earth did you work on this problem in this way? And he said, I just had a hunch mm. it was the right thing to do. So, um, yeah, so John was a tremendous education um, to me. Um, he gave me a great idea to get working on. It didn't make any sense to me at the time. I thought it can't possibly be right, but it turned out it was right. <laughs> what um, was it? Do you, do you mind? Well, it was a very technical problem, but it, I mean, because I think I just landed on, you know, with no warning mm. and um, on his lap and, you know, suddenly he had to find a PhD oh, project. Right. Yeah. And he said to me, he had this idea that, um, that uh, if you had a separated boundary currents or something like the Gulf Stream mm -hmm. in the Atlantic um, he said it, you know in the, in the numerical models at the time the ocean circulation models at the time the Gulf Stream didn't penetrate far enough into the Atlantic and he had this idea that um, I'll try to put this not in technical language that if the jet was very broad and had a sort of bell shaped profile mm. then um, it wouldn't penetrate very far but if it was very if it was cusp like so it had a very sharp peak in the mm. velocity of the core it would penetrate further and it was to do with a couple of mathematical solutions that did or didn't didn't or did show a jet penetrating and I, I thought this was to be honest a, a slightly wacky idea but I tried it in a numerical model and lo and behold it worked, it worked exactly yeah. as John said so you had to construct those two different kinds of jets exactly. in the numerical model yeah, and, so, you know, and, and it was pretty obscure stuff you know looking mm. back but it was a great I think it was a great project to to work on and I think you know if if I wanted to have got well known very quickly in the field and get highly cited the area to be working on was deep convection hmm. which turned out to be you know John's first I think you know huge contribution to the field um, but I think in some ways I was lucky I wasn't working on that because this was very much a side project for him so it meant you know he was less hands-on and it gave me time <laughs> to just mess around and discover get things wrong, discover things for myself, which I, you know, I learned again is very important in a PhD training. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah time to take... Yeah. You know, and of course, he was strongly influenced by his PhD supervisor, John Green, who by all accounts was an amazing person. Hmm. He wrote very few papers, but has just produced this amazing stream of PhD students and postdocs. Is that someone you met? Did you meet? I've met John Green. I met John Green a handful of times. And um, I mean, he passed away, sadly, a few years ago. Hmm. Um, but he spent his final years at UEA and it was always an interesting experience giving a seminar because at that point he was quite frail but so he wouldn't ask the questions in the seminar but you would receive an email some a week later from Dave mm -hmm. Stevens and he'd say here's John Green's feedback and questions for you and hmm. it was very always very blunt often quite amusing 
<laughs> but, um, Blunt and, and delayed, and in yes. an email, so that that gives you time to. But knowing about. enough about John Green, you realised to filter it in the right way. But, you know, uh, I see. So yeah. the way it was put was not, you know, it was not not very soft necessarily. Well, for example, that. early on, I remember getting one that said, "Listening to it was this is from a meeting." He said, um, "He said, dear Peter and David." So it was Peter Kilworth who was a very senior person in the field at the time that I looked up to, mentioned previously. And he said, Dear Peter and David, listening to both of your talks last week, I wondered if either of you have ever heard of baroclinic instability. Well, this is one of the basics of, of geophysical fluid dynamics. Yeah. And, but, you know, having, having Peter Kilworth wrapped up into this same email made clear that I was... I shouldn't take this too seriously yes. as a piece of criticism. That it wasn't directed at you necessarily. But what followed was a quite a useful perceptive comment. So. Okay, yeah. So that, um, but that was the very much the John Green and John Marshall approach. Actually, was to be very provocative and, mm. and force us to raise our game. Mm. You know, why do you think this is the case? And, and that's still he's still doing that. I mean, John Marshall is still you know, is. doing that at MIT, and that's still the kind of I understand that's the kind of mode he's continued to operate in since then. You know, it works for some people; it doesn't work for others. But for yeah. me, it, I think it was it was very useful. Yeah, that's right, and that's that's another thing. Finding the right advisor for you is very important as well, because like like you said, that kind of bluntness could be off-putting and disturbing <laughs> to some yeah, people. And to be honest, at times I think you know you cross the line and said he says things that probably shouldn't be said. But um, mm. but for me personally, it's exactly what I needed at that stage. Indeed. And John Green, so his advisor was Edie, is that right? Eric Edie. Eric yes. Edie, and then Edie. Is I'm trying to work out Lorenz, right? I think is that Ed Lorenz? No, I don't. Think no, so. don't think so. Okay, I don't think so. I've been trying to find out who Eric Edie's supervisor is, and in fact, okay. I, I, the last person I spoke to about this was Arno Chaya, who I think has got a copy of Eric Edie's thesis. Okay, so yeah. it's on my to-do list to go <laughs> and visit Arno and try and figure out. Right. Yeah. So the. Uh, I just had my brain stop for a second for some reason, which happens. Um, so, oh, and you had you spent some time at um, you spent some time at MIT, MIT. as well, right? Because yeah, John so, moved from so this Imperial was a, to MIT. A pure stroke of luck. Um, that that um, so after about a year, I think John warned us that he was talking to MIT. Okay, there was a possibility he might move. He said it was unlikely, hmm. um, but. Um, sadly, it's the situation that's still still the case in the UK that the UK was unable to respond. Imperial was unable to respond fast enough, I think. Oh, really? And um, so there was an offer from MIT an offer from and... MIT, and so John went um, without tenure, but a promise of a tenure decision after two years. I think hmm. went on a leave of absence to the US, and and by the time Imperial had made a convincing counter offer, MIT had upped its game. And it was right. too late, and um, you know we sometimes in the UK it's hard to compete to be blunt um, with the sort of resources they have. Is it a resources thing, or are there other aspects? There, other and there are often, I think, local constraints as well about mm. the way things are done here that can. So um, the so we 
so it turned out that he did move to MIT, and um, we all moved over as a group. In fact, the group expanded slightly. Hmm. Did you keep um, your program at Imperial, or did you move your... So we, we stayed registered at Imperial right. as students. Right. Otherwise, we, we were offered the chance to switch to the joint program at MIT Woodsall, hmm. but effectively we would have had to start again. That's right. And take the general exams, and it's a six-year program. We don't yeah. want to... Yeah. I had one year to go. I didn't want to do that. No, that's right. So, And uh, the UK and US systems are so different. They I guess you probably would have had to suddenly take a bunch of courses and things. Cause, yeah. uh, you know. So, you know, what I actually did was um, I went for one year as a PhD student and I sat in on many courses. Right. But, yeah. I mean, I basically cherry-picked the nice parts of the joint program. <laughs> and when it got tough, we just disappeared. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> so I'd say the only downside is that when we came back to defend at Imperial, there was no one there. So it was mm. a bit lonely. Oh, weird, right. to be honest, but um, you didn't have a cohort who was still no, there, right? No, not at all. The whole group had pretty much left, mm. um, and at that stage, it wasn't clear that the atmospheric um, ocean physics would continue. It did eventually, but um, but for a year or two, there was nothing there mm. at all. So we came back to defend in the UK, but I'd only been at MIT for a year, so I stayed for two more years as a postdoc with John. Hmm. Uh, who gave me a lot of freedom, I have to say. And um, so effectively, I, I sort of did join the joint program, but I did it unofficially. <laughs> Informally, um, just by being around. And, and I to... sat in a number of courses as a postdoc. Um, there was one in particular by Alan Plum on atmospheric transport. Hmm. I remember going along thinking, well, what on earth is he going to talk about for 10 weeks? Because hmm. um, you know, I thought there's a limit to what you can talk about yeah. if it's just fluid being moved around the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, little did I know that I would be working on this topic ever since. And yeah, that's something that uh, Ryan Abernethy, who's now a professor at uh, Columbia, he said that uh, most of what he learned about the Antarctic circumpolar current, he learned from the stratospheric dynamics. Yeah, <laughs> and it was perfect timing because the what's called you know, the gentleman Williams parameterization was really about to take off. There was a very famous paper by Dana Basaglivitao that came out just after taken that course and it was pretty clear at the time that the stratosphere was the southern ocean for me and <laughs> and you know the papers up until about I guess 1985 or so had been published but and so I remember thinking well the ones after that haven't been published so I'll start working on those problems hmm. and um and so, oh, so I see you, you looked in the kind of stratospheric yeah. literature and said why don't I take some of these methods and apply them yeah. to so the I mean there was a there was they talked about the diabatic circulation in the in the atmosphere and I thought well that must be true in the southern ocean so so hmm. I wrote a paper on eddy subduction that was very much inspired by hmm. the um by that atmospheric transport course right. and um, but also it just meant that when the whole gentleman Williams and, um, and Eddie induced transport ideas when they broke into oceanography I already understood what they were talking about that's right you've already been and, soaked in that you know, I know you've worked on this and mm-hmm. it's a bit of a learning curve you know and if you if you already know the material then you have an edge so yeah. for a few years I know that that was a huge advantage hmm. that I could see what to do with gentleman Williams that I think other people were still getting to grips with because I'd taken these courses. So yeah, so I'm a big fan of taking courses, you know, after you've mm-hmm. you've That reminds me about the connecting you've the dots the basics. Yeah. point you made uh, when you mentioned Steve Jobs earlier. Taking courses that don't seem necessarily related to what you're doing, but yeah. you you find ways to connect them with your work yeah. you know, down the road. Yeah, yeah. So you're able to do that with Absolutely. with stratospheric dynamics. 
Um, can we still do that? Are there still ideas from stratospheric dynamics that we can mine and apply to I this other notion? I, I don't Has, know about did, stratospheric dynamics. Or did you do, you did it all? I think, <laughs> absolutely not. But I think, it's, I think it's the wrong question, to be okay. honest. I okay. think there's, yeah. what's undoubtedly true is there are ideas in other fields we can mine. Mm. Yeah, for um, sure. And so, you know, just make it your job to, to keep learning. Yeah. It's part of what I've been excited about lately in terms of the machine learning stuff is that those those approaches haven't really been applied to you know, our field very much. Um, it's it's a little bit different in that you know all these machine learning approaches are kind of statistical descriptions of data sets, so they don't necessarily quickly get you into the realm of oh I am connecting one process with another, mm. but I'm I'm kind of excited by the idea that there is a whole set of approaches and techniques that just have not been you know applied uh, to, to our field very much mm-hmm. that you know, we can do some of that are you okay on time yeah, do, do you have any have any constraints or no, you, none, at all. Right? Okay, none at all cool. um, yeah here all day here all day yeah that's <laughs> yes. right um good yeah so after um your time at mit as a postdoc it was reading i think is that after yeah that it was i went to reading i for the, so for the last nine months i guess at MIT, I applied for a lot of positions at various different levels, so postdocs, um, um, sort of research faculty stroke fellowship type positions. Um, I'd seen a job come up at, at Reading um, from memory. Well, it was it would have been advertised, I guess, very early in 1994 or maybe late the previous year. So um, my contract would have expired in the autumn of '94. So um, and it was the perfect faculty job for me, hmm. physical oceanography in Reading. And I thought hmm. that's the job I want, but it's too early. Hmm. I haven't got hope in hell of getting it, and so I let it go by. Um, the person who got appointed to that turned out um, to be Steve Belcher, a fantastic scientist, and someone I got to know very well. Became a good you know friend later, but. Um, but um, was not really, I'd say, the large-scale physical oceanographer, oceanographer they'd advertised for. It okay. was more of a boundary layer meteorologist who also worked on surface wave problems mm. and extremely good at doing that. And, um, and then, um, but I guess that was the first occasion when I'd, I'd entertained the idea of applying for a faculty job. And, um, and then position came up at Imperial and likewise at UCL in mathematics, so the Imperial one, I guess, they'd appointed a new chair at that point, and then there was a lectureship to go with it. Hmm. And so um, so I decided I would throw my hat into those rings, and I came second in both. And, hmm. and to be honest, again, that was a very happy thing that happened to me, because I think oh, I was much better off ending up at Reading. And then, it must have been difficult at the time, though, I imagine. Oh, yeah, no, and I came second also in a job in Hawaii. I mean, I kept coming second, yeah. and second's yeah. no good if you're looking for a job. Did that yeah. was that rattle? If you don't mind me asking, did that rattle your your confidence? Did that make you? Did that I ever don't make know you? If it feel rattled like... my confidence coming second. To be honest, I think I was worried that I was not qualified for the job yeah. at that stage. So mm-hmm. I think I was pretty pleased to even be in the running, mm-hmm. you know, let alone to get some nice feedback. And um, um, I guess the post in in Hawaii I would have liked. I just fancied the idea of two years <laughs> in Hawaii. Mm. I've heard it's kind of isolating there. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and uh, I think with hindsight, it wouldn't have been a great idea, but but it seemed attractive at the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and then late in the year, the I saw another t- 
two jobs advertised in Reading and physical oceanography was mentioned again. Hmm. And I remember thinking, I really have to apply for this. And I think John made some comment that this would be the last faculty job in physical oceanography for some years in the UK, <laughs> you know, which probably didn't help. Oh. So I did apply and it was a, and it was actually a very, very strong shortlist um, to my, but to my surprise, um, I did get one of those positions. In fact, they created three positions oh, wow. in okay. the end. And um, so Chris Forncroft and Giles Harrison and, you know, and, um, and so I started in October of that year at uh, Reading, not really knowing what I was doing, but I really was down to a few weeks left in my contract. Oh, my gosh. That's, but, that's um, terrifying. But yeah. it worked out. I mean, it mm. was no question it was the best of the jobs I could have got, the perfect oh. place. Meteorolo- very, very strong world-class meteorology department, but there was no large-scale deep-sea physical oceanography. Mm. So there was a niche that you could, yeah, you could fill. I mean, I had a lot of freedom, but for someone working in fluid dynamics... I mean, really, I was not isolated at all. Right. So much to learn from people there. Yeah, Brian Hoskins, Alan Petal. I think that's so. what my advisor, uh, Taka Ito, enjoyed about mm. Colorado State, you know, his first faculty job. That's right. He was the only oceanographer there, but he learned people a lot like from... Wayne Schubert. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. And Thomas Berner, who's yeah. a really good um, stratospheric dynamicist. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, lo- loads of other people there as well. Yeah. And uh, he... Uh, so he, he he got as much out of that as he could, you know, during his time there, I think. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, enjoyed that as well. So, I mean, I really didn't know what I was doing when I showed up. I was mm-hmm. in at the deep end. But, you know, sometimes you just, if you throw yourself in the deep end, you know, you discover you can just about swim and or wing it. At least that's how I felt for <laughs> yeah. years. Um, what parts of it felt felt new to you in terms of, was it advising people or was it the just navigating the culture of a, a different department? Or Well, first, I mean, there was the, uh, the practicality as you're going to teach and teach quite right. soon. So yeah. you need to get your material prepared. And mm. I'd like to pretend I was all organized, but the truth is it was all very last minute. And despite good plans, I felt like I winged it, but yeah. it, it went okay. I think, and, and it was my bad luck that the very first lecture I gave, the happens that whatever the teaching assessment was called at the time, I think it was called the TQA, the inspectors showed up for my first, um, not my first lecture, they showed oh. up for the last lecture, and I'd got the feedback forms filled out, and the inspector asked if he could read the feedback before I'd even seen it, which I oh. thought was quite nasty, actually, and terrifying. <laughs> the, but the um, feedback from your students? From my students, and um, and I remember some disaster happening in the first lecture with the with the overhead projector not working, so I had mm. to handwrite a lot on the board. Mm. I think what I learned from that is that as long as you talk to the students, get them on side, you know that that really they don't mind what goes wrong. All they want yeah. to do is learn, and if, if you're on their side, they will help you. Yeah, that's right. It's very sure. rewarding teaching. There's um, I think. There is part of teaching that does involve mm. creating a small sense of community, creating a small like uh, a space where you know people can like, yeah, we're we're on this together. This is something we're doing together. This is not me imposing something on you. This is mm. I'm trying to help you, you know, navigate this new material and to think about things in a new, in a new way. And I'm trying to give you some tools. Yeah. yeah so that took, um, and I think it's always hectic the first time around, like the first time when you're te- teaching a new course, and it. It's like everything, yeah. you know. After every disaster that can happen has happened, and you're still you're still going, and yeah. people still say nice things. You realise actually, it's it's not quite as bad as you thought. Yeah. 
But I think the big challenge for me was more the research side. You know, despite all the words I'd written on my application, I really didn't feel that I think was qualified to do this job. And because now it really fell on your shoulders to carve out your own path. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, and I felt you know what I was doing really was, I guess, a bit fake and um, hmm. compared to what other people did, which always seemed impressive and. And, um, you know, we don't talk enough in science about imposter syndrome. And I'd yeah. say, you know, even up and it's probably only the last five years or so, I'd say I've really started to get over that. Really? But, um, yeah, years, no, I mean, yeah. it, um, you know, you're always worried that you're going to be found out. I think it's really important to say that because, I yeah, mean... I've that, started speaking you know, out a lot about yeah. this because it's important. That period includes when you were, I mean, you're a professor at Oxford now and you've been there for some time, right? Well, when I, when I, I mean, I didn't really apply to Oxford. I mean, there was a, they were looking for a junior appointment in oceanography mm. and um, I think a number of people there thought maybe it would be better to make a senior appointment. So it was, um, it was a post that was really created um, if they could find a senior person to go and, and ask me if I would be interested. Mm. And at the time, I was talking to Imperial College, actually, and I thought, well, it would be stupid not to at least have the discussion. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I mean, there was nothing really in physical oceanography at Oxford. It was, and it had a, a sort of checkered history, I'd say, oh, really? over the previous um, decade or so. Tom Hayne had been there briefly as a replacement when David Anderson had left. Um, for three years, but for whatever reason, they hadn't managed to get the act together to keep him hmm. there. And um, so, and people, you know, uh, Oxford, I think, had had the opportunity in the mid '90s to become what Reading had become. Hmm. Um, they had the Hook Institute, but it hadn't worked out, and Merck had pulled the money. So it had a checkered history, and I think they were probably right. It needed a senior appointment, and. But I, I was just paranoid um, then. They asked me to send a CV, and I was honestly waiting for the email. Of the, you know, I realised at that stage it would be a polite email, but it would probably you know, come up with some excuse about you were waiting for the, the, uh, the funding had fallen through oh, and they couldn't run with it. But I thought yeah. they, they're going to look me up and realise how low my H index is, or, <laughs> or they'll realise how few papers I've written. And it really, you know, I really hadn't written many at that stage. They're going to find out. Yeah, just... So I was, I was convinced this was going to happen. <laughs> at both Oxford and Imperial. Yeah. That they were just going to knock on your door one day and, and say... And I'm still not uh, quite sure I understand how I got away with it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, we can really often be our own worst enemies, mm. right? And like we can often mm. be our own kind of worst critic and to really... Uh, there's some kind of insecurity there, right? There's some kind of... I don't know where that comes from. Though. Yeah, I don't know where that comes from. I don't know where that... Because I, I have that too in thinking about... Um, just that gnawing feeling of like ah something uh, I don't know I'm not really right for this or I'm not good enough for this yeah, yeah I'm very I think lots of people are very familiar with that and feeling. I think where it's it's I mean on a serious point where it's very important is is when it leads to implicit bias in selection processes mm. I mean there are all sorts of interesting statistics um, can you say more about that so um, you know one I heard recently I I haven't fact checked this so you know apologies if it's wrong but. Um, that I heard someone told me that um, that um, that men tend to apply for jobs um, if they meet forty percent of the criteria, mm. whereas women will only apply for jobs if they oh, meet a much they? higher percentage. You know, and of course it's oh, a generalisation, wow. and there's a but you know there's a lot of variation within that. You know, those two groups too. But you know, those are the sort of issues we need to be acutely aware of. I think is that even before you look at applications, you may have ruled people out. 
Absolutely. Um, and so when you, and so certainly when I went through the Athena Swan process, it made me rethink the way I draft all of my advertisements. Hmm. To try, as far as you can, try and minimize the bias. How did you do that? Did you um, try to be a little bit less specific in terms of you, really you, being narrow? And I think the easier things are to avoid. Uh, I mean, I saw an example yesterday. I know that we. I've been told you should never do. You know, for example, don't say you want someone to run a vigorous research program because immediately that it's kind of meaningless if you think about it. <laughs> you know, what does it mean? And um, but but is there there is evidence that that will bias the application pool. Hmm. So I think it's more about listening to the evidence, and and if the evidence is there, then you know, follow the recommendations. Yeah, respond to it. So it's about having sure. a good HR department that will look through all of your advertisements, tell you when you're doing something that you shouldn't do. Mm, yeah, yeah. And those inclusive statements that get added that some people often think you know don't mean much. Actually, they are important. They they often can help. For sure. I did see one uh, contradiction that, um, and I, I won't name, the, I won't throw the place under the bus, but there were two paragraphs next to each other, and the first paragraph was about how inclusive this institute was, and about how they tried to get, you know, uh, applicants from all over the place, and they tried to have, you know, good diversity, which is absolutely important. But the second paragraph was about how they only hire people from these countries, <laughs> and there was a short list of what well, we only hire folks from these countries, mm-hmm. you know, and that contrast was very, was very kind of striking to me, and kind of, mm-hmm. kind of humorous. Um, yeah, so the it, it's important to have a good HR department, isn't it? Like, I think I didn't appreciate that as much as I probably should have, because um, I, I helped do some interviews, and it was really interesting being on that side of the process. I hadn't really been on that mm-hmm. side of the conversation before, and our HR person was super helpful in terms of helping us be consistent across all the interviews and to do things in a fair way, you know, and, and to make sure that we weren't um, introducing bias unfairly into the interview process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really good. Um, so we should talk about some science stuff. That would be good too. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you want to, I mean, I think yep. that could be a good direction, good direction to go in. Um, I had written a few things down, uh, about maybe OSNAP. I didn't know if we wanted to talk about OSNAP a bit or, um, this geometric thing. These are just a couple of things that I found kind of on your website yep. and that I, that I know you're involved with. Um, and there was also this recent kind of, there was a recent Eddie saturation paper from last year. Yeah. Um, so why don't I offer you those kind of options and if, you know, whatever, since okay, we had that well, earlier discussion about what you're excited about, what are yeah, you excited about um, these days? Well, I mean, those are the things those that are the big topics for me at the moment. Yeah, so, yeah. so let's start with the eddies. I mean, the eddy saturation geometric are really the same project, I guess. Mm. So, I mean, this was a, I mean, a long-term program, really, that goes back to my last years in Reading. Um, it reminds me again of something Peter Kilworth said to me uh, many years ago that um, you know he's, he had several secret research programs secret <laughs> you know, things that you're too embarrassed to admit you're, you're doing because you can't even describe what they are um, so geometric very much started as that it was me sort of doodling on paper during let's just say the, some of the less interesting seminars we had at Reading, mm. I would start messing around on paper, just playing with what we call the Reynolds stresses. So so how the turbulent eddies, the ocean weather systems, I guess, you know, transfer momentum from one place to another. Yes. And and th- these um, these momentum fluxes, as they call it, they're very interesting mathematical properties. Yes. Uh, mm. Now I understand exactly what the mathematical object is. You know, people like James Madison taught me 
in detail what we were dealing with. But at the time, it was very curious to me. There was a very interesting sort of rotation symmetry. Mm. You, you'd rotate these fluxes around by 180 degrees and you'd get back to where you started. And I, I just thought this was fascinating. I had no idea where it was going to lead. Mm. But I started messing around with it. And, and then I think it was about 2009, there was a Clivar meeting at Exeter and I signed up to give a talk on eddies ocean eddies and um, their parameterization and so I slipped in some of this thinking into the last part of that talk and I remember it's often when you've got a deadline you know you start you actually mm. think I, I really should work out how bits and pieces you hadn't got around to thinking about you yes. think oh, I'll work those out and do some calculations <laughs> and and actually I suddenly realized this wasn't a bad idea after all there was some useful results mm. and so for the last decade we've really pushed it and the idea is, is very simple. You know, I'm in a physics department now, so they, one thing I like about a physics department is you're always encouraged to go back to basics sure. and just yeah. think about conservation of energy and momentum. And, and frankly, you know, what I really learned from the gentleman Williams work in the 90s was do as little damage to the equations as you can. <laughs> the one thing we have in physical oceanography that the biologists don't have is we know the Navier-Stokes equations describing fluid motion. The problem is we can't solve them, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but we know what the equations are, and it leads to some conservation laws, conservation of energy, momentum, and so forth. And, um, and so try and whatever we do when we parameterize, when we model the turbulent eddies that, the, that aren't captured by these climate models, make sure that we don't damage those conservation laws. And... Um, and I mean, we went through endless numerical calculations and um, pages and pages of, at times, pretty complicated mathematics. Um, but um, but I think, you know, at the end, it's been very pleasing because we've discovered, um, for example, that this, this thing called eddy saturation. So basically, if you change the wind forcing over the Southern Ocean, it has no impact on the strength of the Antarctic circumpolar current in certain models mm -hmm. when you have explicit, when you actually resolve the eddies. Right. And this wasn't true in the parameterization, but when you take this geometric approach, that result just drops out. And moreover, it drops out for very simple physical reasons that you can describe on one piece of paper. So, mm. you know, for me, that's, you know, that was very exciting and pleasing because it kind of reaffirmed my belief you know, to have the confidence to just think about the basics and, and you know, with hindsight, I could have done it very quickly, but I, it, it wasn't obvious to me at the time what question was the right question to ask. Yes. But once you know the answer, it's obvious what you should have asked. Like you said, good ideas seem obvious after the fact. Yeah, after but you, they arrive. Yeah, and I'd, I'd say, you know, that's, you know, uh, there aren't many times in my career I'd say I felt I've had one of those moments, but that certainly for me is probably the peak moment is suddenly realizing you know you know oh my god we can explain any saturation i know it might be hard to do just in in words but if you had to explain to somebody what that core idea is in the geometric you know what the kind of revelation was for you is there a way to put that yeah um so i mean it's kind of interesting what happens is so the naive view would be what the wind stress is going to blow the water so it moves faster um, so the stronger the wind, the faster the current will go. Makes perfect sense. What actually happens is you increase the wind stress and and you put more energy into the eddies, the turbulent eddies. Yes, right. And that changes what we call the eddy diffusivity. 
Um, so as you increase the wind stress, yes, you know, to some extent you're speeding up the current, but then the eddies are more effective yes. at then opposing that's right, and the diffusivity that is kind of a tendency of the eddies to mix. Yeah, and actually what, what it turns out is that um, actually the current is set by friction, at the, the damping, the drag at the bottom of the ocean. And moreover, the stronger the drag, the stronger the current. Hmm. Um, and that's basically because friction kills the eddies. And if you, so if you have stronger friction, you, get, you need the current to be more unstable, in other words, faster in order to bring the eddies back and get to equilibrium. So the analogy I like to give, I don't know if it's a great analogy, is um, you, know, you might ask uh, a, a question. If you were to... So imagine you take your bath at home and you, you put the plug in and then ask, what's the equilibrium level of the water in your bath um, for different rates of filling the bath? So mm-hmm. you, know, you open the tap so the water comes in slowly or quickly how does that affect the height of the of the water in the bath in equilibrium? And the answer you've is... You've got the plug open. You know, you've got with the, the bath with yeah, the plug yeah. closed. Yeah, with and, the plug closed. And, and the answer is it has no impact whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Because basically there is a, there's a threshold. When the water reaches the top of the bath or the overflow you know, pipe, um, it's not going to go any higher, yeah. however fast the, the water's coming in. Mm-hmm. And that's very much the analogy here. Um, that's an instability. Once the water reaches that level, it flows over the top, and mm-hmm. isn't, you've reached a threshold. It's not yeah. going to go any higher. You get a wet floor now. It's, you get a wet floor, yeah. but the water's mm-hmm. not going any higher. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly the same analogy. The wind stress is like your tap. Um, and, and what happens is that the circumpolar current initially is not unstable, but then you cross this stability threshold, like reaching the top of the bath, and it's not going to get any faster. Right. Right, and the height of the bath is equivalent to the friction in our model. And the geometric parameterization gives you a way to incorporate that into the coarse resolution model. So it turns out it just drops out for free out of the geometric parameterization. But to me, you know, far more important than the parameterization again is the physical intuition mm-hmm. it gives you. Mm-hmm. So it's the fact it's doing something, and I, you know, I honestly believe for the right reason. Mm. Um, so you know this is a very simple toy model but then you can abstract this we put it into we now have it in the NEMO um, you know the European Ocean model that's used by the Met Office but in fact the paper's about to appear in print in Journal of Physical Oceanography any day mm. we've, we've cr- returned the proofs where we we show um, in the um, we show in the actually I say it's in the NEMA model. This is still in the MIT general circulation model mm-hmm. that we get eddy saturation when you solve the full Navier-Stokes equations. Right. Um, in three dimensions, um, in a coarse resolution, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, but we've now put it into a global model mm-hmm. in a global configuration in NEMA, and it, the, you know, I, we we, well, we need to do all the calculations to be confident. But my my sense is it seems to be doing the same thing. Mm. The can, can you say anything about what's different between the Gent McWilliams approach and the geometric approach? Yeah, so basically it's a... So you, you, when, when you, you're working on a problem like this, I like to have many different hats on, you know. So uh, at one end I've got the theoretical work and we were just discussing trying to understand the physics of eddy saturation. At the other end of the spectrum, you're trying to do something very practical that can be used by the climate modeling community. Mm-hmm. And I think there, the important thing is to, to try and change as little as you can 
in the existing models. People are very reluctant mm. to change. Yeah, yeah. And, and Understandably, because yeah, there's good so reason. many dependencies all over the place. And it's also a lot of work. And, mm. and, and it turns out that we can basically leave Gentleman Williams pretty much as it is. But what you have to do is solve an equation for the total amount of turbulent energy, eddy energy in the ocean as an integrated over depth mm-hmm. at each latitude and longitude. And we make some pretty ad hoc, but I think well-justified physical assumptions about how the eddy energy propagates through the ocean. There's a lot of satellite data telling us that energy propagates westward. It's invected by depth-mean flow. Um, and um, you know, if you have a patch of eddies, they'll tend to spread out to some extent. So you know, at that level, um, we, have to, we have to try and model the details of the eddy energy. But the key to geometric actually is just that overall the, the, the sources and sinks of eddy energy are modelled in a consistent manner. And um, so you have, to, you have to solve for this new variable and then you simply rescale the, the, what we call the eddy diffusivity um, so that it's consistent with our model eddy energy um, variable. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's really one extra routine to solve for the eddy energy yeah. and then a rescaling of the existing diffusivity. Yeah, where diffusivity is kind of a tendency of the eddies to mix along certain directions. Exactly, so, yeah. or to, or to fl- you know, frankly, just flatten the, the density surfaces of the ocean. Yeah, yeah. So the so it's an integrated measure. It's something that it's an integrated correction. Mm. So as opposed to, I guess, a more traditional approach is just to look at what's happening locally and just think about the local variable. You know, when you're thinking about how to parameterize some local process, mm. but this is a non-local kind of integrated approach, or it's, it has that non-locality kind of to it. I mean, it's local in the sense that in at any time step in your model, you're you're you're, you're looking over the entire column, but it's um, you're not looking in a non-local sense. Hmm. But on the other hand, it's non-local in that if you create any energy somewhere, it can then propagate somewhere else and affect the hmm. flow in that region. Yeah. Although, having said that, as much as that idea appeals to me, I think you know to our it's always a disappointment we discovered actually the eddy energy doesn't get very far mm. before it's dissipated. So one of the other big paradigm shifts in my thinking is that it turns out the time scale for the eddy energy to be to be damped by, by bottom drag or other processes is a few months oh, really? in the Southern Ocean. It's surprisingly short. Mm. So the global circulation can keep going for, for thousands of years, yeah. but the eddies are clobbered by friction. And I didn't realise this, but you can pull that out of the observations. And, and it's essentially because this, this very basic result that I goes back to John Green, actually, Gil Green and Simmons, 1974, that the ratio of kinetic to potential energy depends on the length scale you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And, and moreover, it goes as the length scale squared. So, so on, for the global circulation, almost all the energy is in the form of potential energy, and it doesn't friction doesn't see that Hmm. Um, whereas for the eddies a much larger fraction of the energy is the form of kinetic energy and it feels the roughness at the bottom Hmm. but it's like you know the global circulation is like a Duracell bunny that just keeps going and going (laughs) but the eddies are clobbered that's really interesting yeah on short time scale and when you say friction how much of that is form stress and how is that like <laughs> um, okay so there's a technical term form stress yeah. is so we're talking about pressure gradients across yeah. topography so one of the interesting and quite an important point is that form stress doesn't do any work mm. 
because it's a force at a right angle to yeah. the flow. So you, it dissipates momentum, but not energy. Mm -hmm. So if I was giving you a more technical answer to the saturation question earlier, I could have gone down that route. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. On the other hand, at small scales, there's clearly a link between what we call form stress and friction. So form stress, you know, leads to drag on cars, but the actual energy is dissipated in frictional boundary layers, mm -hmm. but it's related to the form stress across the car yeah. too. So, um, so my honest answer to that question is I think we're only just beginning to get to grips to what we mean by, <laughs> by, by bottom drag. Mm. There's a very fascinating paper. You asked me about nice papers. Um, there's one that's about to appear in, I think just has appeared in Journal of Physical Oceanography by Jody Kleinach, um, addressing exactly this question, and um, which I think is fascinating. But I, I think it's early days. I think this is a program for the next 10 years or so. What is form stress? What do we mean by... Well, <laughs> what do we mean you know, by... how is eddy yeah. energy dissipated? We've mm. been rather obsessed with the sources of eddy energy for the last decade mm. or two. But perhaps even more important is where does the energy get? How does it get dissipated? And is that something that, when you say that you know, the eddy energy is dissipated in just a few months, is that something that numerical models get? Do they show that same sort of thing, or do, or how did you arrive at that result? They, I guess. I mean, one? if they do, it would be purely by coincidence. Mm -hmm. um, so the the how do we arrive at that result is a very simple idea. So another. Um, person I've worked with a lot recently is Xiao Ming Shai. Yeah, um, at uh, University of East Anglia. Very talented young scientist who um, just won a Challenger Fellowship, so it's like a young yes. scientist award, um, which was great. And, um, and one of his great skills, something he taught me, is um, is you know be brave enough to ask really basic questions of mm. the observations. Oh, yeah. um, so he basically just takes the ratio of, of the amount of energy going into the ocean from the winds to um, divide that by the amount of energy that's in the ocean. And there's a lot of uncertainty in, in these calculations, especially the latter. So the answer probably has a you know 50% or 100% error bar on <laughs> it. But, um, but it turns out the ratio in the Southern Ocean is about four months or so. Mm. Now, so what's the assumption here? The assumption is that the most of the energy going into the ocean, the Southern Ocean, comes from the wind stress, that sooner or later that ends up in the eddy field and then it's dissipated. And what I love about this is you don't need to know anything about the dissipation mechanism, but in equilibrium that must equal the... The source must equal the sink, right, right. and so, so you kind of budget. Analysis. So you can pick out the strength of the sink hmm. through the budget analysis, right. and that gives you a time scale. And hmm. you know, he averages over ten degree latitude yeah. bands to get an answer. That's there's energy going in, there's energy going out, yeah. and you can track that. Yeah, you know, there's but a the point is the time scale varies between about a year in in the um, mid latitudes, lower latitudes, to about four months. Hmm. Yeah. the Southern Ocean. So, you know, whether it's two months, four months, a year, you know, I think is not the point. It's not 100 years. It's surprisingly right. fast. I'm just picturing, he must have plotted that, right? The, you can pl probably plot that ratio and make a nice map of it, I would imagine. Of that yeah, what scale. we've actually done is to do it as a, a graph, as a function of latitude. Mm -hmm. so, so one of the things I have to do early now, I'm on sabbatical, is get that paper finished mm, right. and submitted. Yeah. Can, you, can you do a map? Can you do a two D? Or you? Been... We when I think it's too noisy, if I'm okay. honest, because um, okay. the problem is energy 
doesn't dissipate in the same place it's formed. We right. talked about how it gets moved around. Mm-hmm. But if you average, average over, we do a moving average over 10 degree bands and you average in longitude, then I, I think it's reasonable to assume that the energy is essentially forced and dissipated. That's one of the things that I think is so uh, kind of fun and well, interesting about our field is there are so many different scales and yeah. the, the window that you pick you know, through which to view yeah. it is so important because it is such a noisy, turbulent system yeah. that if you just looked at it instant, you know, moment to moment, instant mm. to instant, it would be very hard to pull out yeah. you know, concise physical ideas about what's going on. Because uh, it just is this turbulent, you know, chaotic. You know, one of the other interesting things that we're going to do in this paper, and again, it has a hundred percent error bar on it. I remember Lynn Talley bursting into <laughs> laughter when I made this comment in a talk. It's like paleoclimate yeah. now. Yes. But, um, but that wasn't a dig on paleoclimate. No, that's I just, just that's, that's the, the world. The, um, but so one of the fun things you can do is reverse the whole eddy saturation argument. So you can predict what the strength of the circumpolar current is in terms of parameters that we basically know, mm. but it doesn't involve a wind stress. Oh, wow. Divided by the eddy energy residence time. I think it's that way around. Mm. And, um, and um, so I've never seen a prediction for the circumpolar current like this, but it comes out as, <laughs> as 10 to the 8 meters yeah. cubed per second, 100 sphere drops, as we say, <laughs> uh, plus cool. or minus 100, 100%. So that that's kind cool. of consistent and fun. It is, that's cool. We that's might have good. trouble with reviewers, but we'll, well, <laughs> we'll try and publish it. Well, now you're on record that uh, you're doing the work, so we'll, we'll, we'll wait for it. We want to hear it. <laughs> that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, how about OSNAP? Do we want to talk about OSNAP? Yeah, OSNAP? sure. OSNAP um, is a very, very different project, so a big mm-hmm. international program um, led by the U.S. So, I mean, OSNAP um, really follows on from, I guess, RAPID, which I was so, involved with for some years I should editorialize. So this is the uh, OSNAP is the overturning, overturning the subpolar in North Atlantic, Atlantic program. program. Yeah, and Rapid I think always just meant Rapid, didn't it? Did I it? think it wasn't oh, an acronym. Not an acronym. So originally rapid. it was Rapid Climate Change, then Rapid Watch, and then hmm. and now just Rapid. I think Rapid is or a program. It's of, a program yeah. that was primarily designed to monitor the overturning circulation at twenty six yeah. North. Yeah. The in the north in the North south. Atlantic, so how much warm water is moving north at the surface? How much mm-hmm. is returning south? Yes, um, but there was also a lot of science funded off this, and I think the great success of Rapid is really the science it's facilitated. Um, you know, the good examples. The you know we we got involved in a, a, a wonderful paper with Torsten led by Torsten Cancel, bringing together hydrographic observations, satellite observations theoretical work, numerical modelling, um, all trying to counter criticism that had been made by one of our colleagues, Carl Winch, <laughs> about the um, uh, basically claiming that the programme was flawed because mm. there was too much noise in the turbulent eddies. Yeah, and, he's, um, he's another person who will give it to you straight. <laughs> yeah, and I, I love Carl. He's been a real mentor to me for, yeah. for many, many years and forces us to, you know, it's a great example, forcing the community to raise its game. Mm. Um, answer is sharper, sharpen the question and give a better answer and it turned out the key to rapid working is really that that, that um, the amount of what we call variance so the you know the extent to which the sea level goes up and down um, is of order about 14 centimetres in the open ocean, it drops to about 4 centimetres at the coast 
And, you know, the first bias you might have, and Carl's view was that this is really just an issue with interpreting satellite data close to a coastline. Are we still, this is rapid? Still? This is rapid, and yeah. it turns out that, you know, the theory, the hydrographic measurements taken in rapid all show this reduction um, for good reasons. So, so anyway, I've, I've digressed quite a lot. So, I mean, so rapid was a program at mid-latitudes. The, the problem with rapid is... It's absolutely the right place to monitor the overturning in the mid-latitude. It's much cleaner to do so there. You get a um, clear signal there. You get a clear signal. It's easier to do. Um, the But it's quite removed from the source where the dense water is first formed, mm. um, which yeah, is in the subpolar North Atlantic mm-hmm. high latitudes. Yeah. And and so you might expect a you know, an order 10-year delay um, if there's a change in the a change in if climate anthropogenic climate change is impacting on the rate at which you make deep waters um, you might expect a long lag mm-hmm. before you'd see this at 26 north so the idea of the OSNAP program was to is to look at the overturning much closer to the source mm-hmm. the problem at higher latitudes is that the warm and cold waters flow not at different depths but pretty much at the same levels but in different parts of the basin so you have to start looking at overturning not as a function of depth but as a function of density and for various technical reasons that's a much harder problem you can't use the fluid dynamics to um, to your advantage in the way that you can in the rapid program so it's a much much more challenging um, observational problem um, but you know it's been great fun to be involved with so we've been involved and um, in the modelling side, working on a very a fairly technical um, type of model that you work with too, mm-hmm. an adjoint model yes. as it's known, <laughs> yeah. trying to understand the sensitivity of the overturning circulation to to changes in the heat, fresh water, and wind forcing at the surface. Right. Um, you get a region you're interested in, a quantity you're, yeah. quantity you're interested in, and you want to see, you want to quantify. If I wanted to change that. What are my options? Where are the places that I could yeah. hit the system to see the biggest change? Yeah, and there's many questions you can ask. You know, from perhaps the most relevant one to rapid is if you observe something in the arrays, how does that impact on the overturning mm. downstream? Which you know may or may not be a well posed question, but you know at least we can try and answer it with an adjoint model. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's also the connectivity between the the OSNAP arrays and the rapid arrays, mm. um, which yeah. again is a classic application I think is a good application of, uh, of adjoint modeling so um, so our postdoc on this project um, so Helen Johnson you know long-term collaborator of mine um, is, is is heavily involved in this work too but we've got a, a very talented postdoc Yavor Kostov on yeah. this and I'd like to talk to both of them they'd be really good, good yeah, folks to you should get them well. both here yeah. and um, and yeah he's I mean he's doing wonderful things with the adjoint model has just got a first paper submitted on an interesting aspect of the seasonal cycle of the sensitivities oh nice and um, but there's there's plenty more to, to yeah. follow there yeah, I'll have to I'll have to look out for that. Um, yeah, and he, he's a really nice person, and you know, I, I like he's been very careful as well. You know, he's thought uh, very deeply about some of the you know really basic aspects of what do these adjoint sensitivities mean, and are there are there we need to be careful in kind of interpreting them, and he's thought about some of those basic issues a good bit. Um, is there someone that um, that you'd like to work with that you haven't had a chance to 
to, yet? And uh, is there somebody you'd like to, or, or something you would like to explore that maybe you haven't, just the right opportunity hasn't come along just yet? Gosh, what an interesting question. I haven't thought about yeah. it. <laughs> um, I'm sure there are. Um... This is not a leading attempt to get you to say that you want to work with me on something, by the way. I'd love to work with you, Dan. There's, um, oh, no, I mean, it's a, very interesting, oh, it's a very interesting question. Um, people I'd like to work with that I haven't got around to, hmm. to working with. I'm just wondering, have I ever worked with Carl Wunsch, actually? Hmm. Um, would be interesting. Other than um, having conversations with I've him. I've had numerous conversations mm. with Carl, but I don't think we've ever worked on a problem together. Mm. Um, a name I brought up earlier, Jim Williams, is someone I've never worked with, mm-hmm. um, who I have a lot of respect for. I mean, often the most interesting collaborations are ones with people of slightly different skill set to your own. Yeah, you mentioned going you know, far outside of your own field earlier to learn new things. Mm. So maybe that, like you said, maybe that's the thing. Find somebody who's different enough from what you're doing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think... I mean, I, I have a lot of time for multidisciplinary science. I have to say I've not done a lot of it. I've been more been someone who's looked for ideas in adjacent fields and applied them to, mm-hmm. my, own, to my own discipline. And increasingly, I've enjoyed talking to observational people, actually. Mm. Um, Listen, that must be very good different skill sets. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Good. Do we want to um, finish with a kind of? Um, it's a, it's a kind of a rapid fire round, but feel okay. free to take as long you as you can. want. You know, to yeah. so I like to ask uh, folks a series of questions about you know what's something you've learned about X, what's something you've learned about Y. So, and uh, sounds scary. You know, is it? <laughs> well, don't worry. No, 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 there's, no, there's no there's no pressure. You don't have to have like a you know. Mm-hmm explode the universe kind of answer you don't have to you know and I, I'm here with you I can help yeah. you out until so uh, what's something you've learned about science if you've got like a I mean there's, we've been talking about it in different ways here over the last uh, you know for the, for the whole interview but is there something that you've learned that maybe surprised you or a little take home a little little bullet point that you feel like encapsulates something you've you've learned um, and uh, yeah feel free you know take time to if you want to think about it a little bit. And, so sorry, the question know, again was... What's something you've learned about science? Um, I'd probably say what I've already said, actually, which mm. is um, I've learned the importance of creativity and original ideas. Yeah. I don't think I appreciated when I came into science right mm. at the beginning. Mm. That when you first came into science, like we talked about, there's this perception that it is... Um, all extremely rigorous to the point where you know you, you move at a very slow pace, and also very like, sort of logical and linear. Mm-hmm. That you go from the beginning to the end in a smooth path, and it's not the way it works. Right. It's it's, um, it's not mechanical. Yeah, I mean, it is to the extent I think it's very important to always be doing something and be busy. Hmm. But if you put yourself in the best position to come up with creative ideas, sooner or later hmm. you will have a creative idea. That's you know, encouraging. Not very often, but you know it does happen. That's encouraging. Yeah, but I think you know those. If you look back at our fields, it's the it's a few big ideas that have often really led to the big advances. But all of the other work was often essential to facilitate that, get us into that place. One of my old professors at a different university, uh, occasionally he would say. Uh, that he was nervous about having PhD students because he's like, I don't have ideas that often. I can't. I, I, 
<laughs> and actually, the most terrifying <laughs> thing is having a really good PhD student. Mm. Uh, I mean, that, you know, I, I, I'm not going to name students because mm. it's embarrassing to <laughs> embarrass them, and it will also embarrass others I don't name, and I always will forget someone mm. yeah. that I should name. But uh, <laughs> you know, I, I remember the first time having a really good PhD student, thinking, "God, if I mess this up, I'm never going to be forgiven." Um, and of course, yeah. you know, you actually you should you shouldn't worry because the really good students will come up with something whatever you do. Yeah, that's right. You could probably do nothing and be the most terrible supervisor <laughs> ever and still come out with credit. <laughs> I've realised uh, actually at Oxford that is a real issue. I think um, that actually it's possible, given really good students. I, I, I think it happens to be honest the, that um, the, you, you can do very little and still come out with, with mm. papers and some credit. Um, which is actually yeah. kind of dangerous in a way I think yeah. it is dangerous uh, I think having been yeah. in other places you come to appreciate just how privileged the position it is to be in one of the top universities yeah. where you have access to amazing students for to me sure. that's the single best thing about Oxford is the quality of the students yeah for sure Yeah, I, I feel very fortunate about that too I've worked with a, a lot of the physics students mm-hmm. from, from Cambridge here uh, for their part 3 for their like master's yeah. courses and uh, like you said, if you get a good student, you don't have to provide that much input. You can point them in a general direction, and they will dig into it. And, they and the great nice thing job. about those master's projects is, you know, they're, they're not, there's no funders to please. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how it works at Cambridge, but in Oxford Physics, it really doesn't matter whether they get results out of it. The, the results can be negative. They can still get a top mark, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which is great because yeah. it means you can try out your crazy ideas. Exactly. And, uh, you know, we had one last year, and I uh, and um, the girl on the project we kept on as a summer student, and um, we're writing a paper now. After yeah. That. yeah. Know, I love that kind of thing. You know, that's real science. Absolutely. And I think from the student perspective, maybe as students, we don't realize like that we can be a really big benefit, you know, to somebody's research program. That we're we are providing something really valuable. Yeah. Even though I think. You know, often when you're in the student position, you might really feel the weight of that imposter syndrome, and you really might yeah. feel the weight of like, what am I doing? What am I getting yeah. into? Yeah, that wasn't rapid. That's all right. No. It's fine. It's yeah. fine. That's it's not a. That's why I kind of hesitated to call it rapid. Yeah. No, it's okay. It's what I kind of hesitated to call yeah. it a rapid fire round, but I guess, uh, well, whatever we're gonna call it. Um, so you did. You did a little bit of. Uh, you went on a ship. Um, I know it's not something that you do, like me, it's not something you do very routinely, but you got that opportunity. What's something you learned about field work when you went on a ship? Oh, God, I learned tons. Um, yeah. I absolutely loved it, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so Alberto Navarro Garabato was chief scientist. And, yeah. and I think he had the idea that he could get me to work on a problem when I was at sea that we talked about for a while to do with, um, what was it, something to do with the adjustment of... Um, Antarctic bottom water, the changes in forcing. And I said, no, Alberto, I've come to see, I'm not coming to work on my computer. I want to be out on yeah, deck. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I, 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 I carried a hell of a lot of, um, of glass spheres around um, when they, we were re- recovering moorings and um, so dismantled these things. And, um, and then I was allowed, after a while, I was allowed to, to start um, recovering the the ADCPs and do things to them, oh, nice. and um, and then the ultimate accolade was when I was told if I wanted to go into the tool shed, I could just go by the technicians. Apparently, that means you've made it. Uh, they trust um, you yeah. enough to go in there. Yeah. You know, so um, yeah, they asked my student Liam Brannigan um, who I was. Was I a technician? So mm-hmm. I was I was really chuffed with that. Um, no, I had a great time. I just became a technician for a, 
for two and a half weeks. It's a very different perspective, yeah. 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 And you, yeah. you, I imagine. Yeah. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I imagine you got an appreciation for when you see a plot. You know, when you see a scatter yeah. plot with a bunch of data on it, uh, the. One of the things that's hidden is all of the human effort that went into getting every single one of those data points. Absolutely, and, yeah. and those technicians, I think, are a hugely underappreciated mm-hmm. resource. And the crew Actually, as well. Um, yeah. yeah, and the crew, of course. But, you know, these, these, the, those techs, um, you know, they're, they're part of the NERC system. I don't think it's always appreciated just how important they are. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, And what a great job who, they do, I mean. Yeah, absolutely. There are folks who... Um, uh, their, their whole job is to be really familiar with a very large set of instruments and to know how to fix them and to know how to troubleshoot them. And they don't have to know every aspect of what to do with that data scientifically, but they, they know how to make those things work. Yeah. Yeah, and without them, we'd be, we'd be yeah. lost. Yeah. We talked about health and safety. I mean, you know, these days it's, it's a very professional operation. You're not allowed near the, the dangerous parts of yes. the operation, but, you know, the great care is taken. With the safety, um, the most fun thing that happened at sea actually, I was on a watch at about two in the morning with with Alex Forian when um, I think it turned out to be a malfunction in the one of the ship's systems. But the um, I guess it was the third officer on duty because it was the red eye shift, and oh, yeah. you know who said he would um, he was going to have to shut down the engines and please could we get this turbulent profiler profiler out of the water as quick as we could oh, right. and it ended up actually going underneath the ship and um, and we got it out and the wire had been cut at least halfway through so we oh. were close to losing that I have to say that was yes. very exciting at the time I, you know with hindsight I know it worked out well so it was it must have been stressful in the moment you know while was, you were going through it it was stressful know. but quite exhilarating actually mm. I mean you know I quite you know those are the sort of moments you sort of live for I a think. real concrete yeah. problem yeah. happening right now something yeah. you have to deal with right Indeed. that moment yeah yeah well, that's that's great yeah and it's uh you also learn about what it's like to be on a ship and the rhythm of that and the kind of yeah. it, it's its own little cultural ecosystem that Indeed. you that you have to be uh, careful of and you have to be mindful of your place within that cultural Indeed. ecosystem Absolutely. yeah it's uh very different from you know being i would imagine from being a professor and you know yes. in your <laughs> yeah for sure what's something you learned about writing do you like writing? Um, I never used to like writing. I was, in fact, if I was going to be critical of my um, school education, I would say writing is one area mm. where I think the it wasn't just my school; the system could have done a much better job because we were taught a lot of creative writing. We weren't taught how to write technical documents okay. or reports. Yes. And actually, it was a real revelation to me when some years later I I stumbled across Michael McIntyre, who's a now emeritus professor in Cambridge. Yeah who's one of the, you know, my favourite people in, mm-hmm. in science. Um, wonderfully supportive mentor yes. of young scientists. He's so enthusiastic. Yeah, my, you know, my um, peer, actually, Rupert Ford, um, was a student of Michael McIntyre and mm. sadly passed away very young. Mm. Must have been about age 40 at the time. Oh, wow. And I know that affected Michael and he I'm made sure a real did, effort yeah. to mentor people since and was already actually yeah he so he was a real mentor for me but yeah. um so michael has always been a big fan of what he calls lucidity 
and yes. science lucid writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we often laugh, you know, at Michael's interjections. You, you give a seminar in Cambridge and you'll be interrupted by Michael for violating a lucidity principle. And, um, That's right. <laughs> and one of the more challenging moments is how to deal with this, or yeah. more to the point, how to keep Michael quiet so you can get to the end of your seminar. <laughs> but the basic points are absolutely spot on, you know, things that I, you have to unlearn a lot of what you're taught at school. Um, write as simply as possible. Make sure you use the first word, the first sentence of each paragraph um, really carefully to say what you want to say. Okay. Don't use superfluous words. Don't use the same word each time you mm. refer to something rather than... So you're always taught to just try and avoid repetition when you... But actually deliberate repetition in writing is very useful because the brain spots patterns. So actually, um, I think these days I've come, I've learnt you know, through hard work to be a much better writer. I wouldn't say it comes naturally. Mm. But, um... Yeah, I've been, I've been really pushing to try to write more first person, mm. from a first person perspective, instead mm-hmm. of from a, you know, detached perspective where it sounds like a, a, yeah. a, a ghost did your work, you know. Yeah. <laughs> this thing was added to this other thing. That, Which uh, is discouraged know. often, and I think it's a mistake. What's that? The, the writing in first person. Mm. I, I know the person that I noticed early on, um, when I was a postdoc, I noticed did this a lot, is Joe Pedlowski. Um, mm. So, um, and I, you know, Joe, I think, often uses I to good effect mm-hmm. to, to signal when he's, he's expressing a personal opinion. Yes. And, and that's something, we talked about taking things you like from people, and that's something I took into my own writing is if you're expressing a personal opinion, then deliberately go into the first person. Yeah, that's right. Instead of this detached third-person yeah, perspective. Right. Yeah, because if you write in the first person, it's a little more obvious about, okay, well, which ideas are you citing and bringing in from previous work, from other folks, and which, are, which ideas are you now pushing mm-hmm. for and introducing in your, your work, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, as opposed to evoking this ethereal like yeah. <laughs> science happening well, in a vacuum. You're implying, sort of thing. It just puts a bit more personality and life into the writing. It does. Yeah. Science writing can be Offer. pretty tedious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It can be really torture to read sometimes. We don't want you know. to be putting people off. No. So. It's complicated enough, right? It's hard enough to understand what we're talking about and to get those ideas across. Yeah, so let's make it as simple as possible. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at it either. I'm definitely still practicing and still trying to evolve and get to to clear. Mm -hmm. Um, What's something you learned about uh, outreach, about trying to take science beyond writing papers and giving talks? Uh, Is this something that you've learned about? Have you had much opportunity to do that? I've probably had more opportunities than I than I've taken. I'd mm. say it's something I've been negligent on over the years. So I mean, I've I've done the old school talk, um, but nowhere near enough. Um, what I have done a lot of in the last few years, um, partly by accident, but um, but partly as being a head of a sub department, is do a lot of work in communicating our what we're doing to alumni. Right, yeah. Um, and, um, and that's been a lot of fun, actually. Um, just realising, you know, how, how much people, your former students, want to hear about what's going on in your department, how we've frankly got a great message to, to sell. Um, yeah. So I've done a bit. I'd say I probably should be doing a lot more mm-hmm. than I do, if I'm honest. Um, I mean, one thing that's always intrigued me, actually, is online learning MOOCs. I've taken MOOCs on the music side, and yeah. it did occur to me 
you can do we this. should do more in our subject there is a MOOC that's about to restart actually starting run by Kiel at the moment mm-hmm. I saw um, that yeah, yeah. It's um just uh, it's a general ocean, ocean. MOOC. It's yeah. called if you want to find it on Twitter. That's right, ocean yeah. MOOC. It's a general ocean course that I think includes some. It includes biogeochemistry and. That, oh not, gosh, not like it's even it. broader than that. Yeah, more of the sea. In fact, you know, you can see a lot of the videos already online. It's um, as far as I can tell, it's a, a number of people. Yeah, that's one thing that's pretty exciting. Discussing their ideas. Yeah, I mean that's that's. There's certainly plenty of really valid critiques of the internet, and I think it. We have not figured out how to really live with the internet yet. Well, it's, you it's know what? I, I I guess um, I'm. I think we have to play to our strengths. You yeah. know, it's what we talked about earlier. We don't all have to do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I would love to see a lot more of actually is this isn't outreach, but it's more. Um, more to specialised level, but surely at graduate training we could pool our resources better with the internet. Hmm. And um, you know, I, I've actually wondered about about graduate courses that people could take anywhere in the world. I just come back from China actually, where I was reviewing the graduate program in Qingdao, and it was a, it was a fantastic program, premier yeah. program in China. Um, they've got aspirations to become truly world class, but you know, one of their challenges is. Is is how to become more, attract more international students mm-hmm. and engage more internationally, and and of course, part of the problem is language, um, because English is the international language. But right. it did get me thinking a lot about well, you know, do we don't need to be flying around the world all the time? You know, we've got the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, I the you know one of the keys catapulted me back into jazz music a few years ago was taking a big MOOC um, that was run out of Berkeley School, um, and you know I I basically created a community of about um, well there's probably five six people hmm. I'm still in touch with frequently. Hmm. The last email exchanges were just last week I think, nice. yeah. um, and. Um, where we were uploading assignments each week and then the concept to scientists is very familiar of peer review yeah. so you review each other's work oh, right. um, and you know it just got me thinking well why can't we do the same graduate with, um, with graduate education because it's pretty specialised but you know the pools tend to be quite small mm-hmm. locally but if we look internationally there's a huge number of students who would benefit from this yeah for sure absolutely so if I get time you know that's something that's on my list of sort of wilder dreams to try to enable to follow that up. sort of thing. I find myself when you mentioned China, I find myself curious about um, you know how they're how they're going to navigate that. How can you attract you know people from all over the world? It's not just a language barrier too, right? It's that they have a very different government structure. And it's very I mean compared to a lot of other places, it's much much stricter and much more you know locked down than I think uh, us in the West are kind of used to, to yeah, dealing I, with. What's your sense on that? I don't I, have I, a know, detailed. You know, I don't have a, a, a sufficiently detailed knowledge mm-hmm. to, to to tell you if that's really the case. Mm-hmm. There certainly were some international students and faculty there, but not many. Right. But um, the one we spoke to, certainly language, was the biggest issue. Okay, yeah. Um, the, I mean, I guess my big fear is that we're going in that more in that direction over here at the moment. It's pretty scary, yeah. And locking down. And, that's, um, that's scary, yeah. That does scare me. Yeah, me too. I, I don't have any solutions other than just keep voting yep. <laughs> and complain. Uh, uh, I sent in my application for my absentee ballot, so I'm gonna I'm gonna vote in the midterm elections in the U.S. and send in my, you know, my picks for the U.S. House Rep and the 
the governorship is up for you know, renewal this time in Georgia as well, which yeah. is where I'm, where I'm voting from. Yeah, I've claimed my uh, Irish nationality, so I'm not Brexiting. I saw that, yeah. 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 I saw that uh, you, you, uh, on Twitter you posted you have your... Two you Irish grandparents. Through, uh, so, nice, yeah, yeah, so you were able to uh, get through ancestry. Uh, your ancestry. So it's largely a protest, but, um, but yeah. also a practical measure too. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's a very... Uh, I'm a little hesitant. I don't mind talking about that if we want to talk about that. It's, it's, I'm just aware that it is a huge topic and it's also kind of a black hole that, we could, that I feel like we could fall into in terms of... Uh, yeah, but it's, it's definitely very scary. Yeah. And I think... Um, I think that, we said you enough. Know, <laughs> yeah, we said enough. I think, the, 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 I think maybe the only other thing I'll say is um, it's really the, the shift in both the U.S. and the U.K. and other places, the cultural shift has just really hammered it into me that, no, you have to stay involved politically. Like, if you want the world to be a certain way, you know, you have to call and complain, you have to vote. And I was voting before, but, you know, it's just really emphasized that, the importance of staying engaged with the political yeah, process. I mean, what I would say is, you know, there are, you know, I'm very proud of my own constituency in Oxford West and Abingdon. I mean, we, we elected a, um, a Liberal Democrat MP, Leila Moran, mm-hmm. I think the world of um, former physics teacher, a female physics teacher, pro-Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I can't think of a better person to have in Parliament. And now, um, you know, second favourite to become leader of the Liberal mm-hmm. Democrat Party um, <laughs> next when they next change their leadership. Um, yeah. So, um, but that was a great example with the Green Party that had, I think, pulled in four thousand votes at the previous election, pulled out, and said encourage their voters to vote Liberal oh, wow. Democrat. That's um, interesting, yeah. Labour didn't pull out the national decision as they wouldn't, but I think it was pretty clear they they made no serious attempt to mm. to to um, campaign in the seat. Mm. And it was a very close-run thing. But mm. What's something you learned about, if, we can, if you don't mind, uh, what's something you learned about music? <laughs> oh, gosh, where do I start? Um, <laughs> I've, I've learned so much about music. What do I love about music? Um... I mean, for me, I've always, I've always loved, since I first was exposed to it, I've loved jazz music, but it's not really, you know, what the hell is jazz? I don't, people say jazz is dying, I don't care, <laughs> to be honest. Jazz is just music, it's about, mm. it's about, um, it's about listening, I love, I love harmony, I'm increasingly getting into rhythm, um, it's just discovering everything that's out there, and, um, and in some ways I find it deeply troubling as well because it's all based on you know I, I learned I was learning recently about different temperaments and I don't know how much you know about this on the piano but tuning systems you know people talk about pure tuning and then and then the piano is basically tuned in a certain way so that it sounds good in all one all 12 of the keys mm. um, so you make some compromises and I find it deeply troubling that something so beautiful is based on something that's only approximate um, is this the thing where uh, you have to make a decision about what what uh, frequency A is going to be? For exactly. Essentially, yeah. yes. And, yeah. and if you have a perfect fifth, then you know there's a there's a very natural link between the frequencies. I remember reading. But then you look at a major third, and there's a pure third, major third, and then there's the 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 equal temperament one that's not quite. And jazz, of course, what you do is you then take all of these 12 notes and, and you bring in a lot of dissonance, which you learn you know, can be very beautiful too mm-hmm. if you voice in the right way. And I find it deeply troubling that it's based on something that's only approximate. But um, no, I just love, the, I love discovering. Mm. 
um, the beauty in music and um, and a bit like science there's nothing nicer than you know going playing live with people and then um, there was a trumpet player last night who was just off the scale like and he was professional mm. it was just a privilege to be there and listen mm. to him yeah I remember reading something a long time ago about um, and you can that uh, back when at the start of the radio era at the start of the radio era that uh, some of the some of the folks like recording artists made a decision to change the you know what what is a and what is c to change the mm. frequencies of those so they would sound a little bit better on the mm-hmm. radio i don't know if there's really uh i'm not an expert in this and i'm not sure if, yeah that's a, that's an interesting rabbit hole one one could go down mm-hmm. um yeah I, I ended up um i'm not uh jazz isn't something that i've explored a ton but um over the summer i kind of found myself getting really interested in kind of art blakey and that uh-huh. you know yeah and I, I don't know for some oh, reason I, yeah yeah for some reason i really responded to that and some of the harmonies in there are just uh, amazing to me really cool stuff and the rhythm and, you know, too actually with yeah. Art there's a lot of probably no one produced sharper ensemble playing yeah yeah than art blakey. um how about um parenting what's something you learned about parenting Oh well, <laughs> you learn you learn lots of things that you shouldn't do by doing it yes, wrong. Um, absolutely. I think you know, at heart, I'm quite a liberal when it comes to parenting. Mm. I I think we overprotect our kids. Mm. You get, you need to give them a lot of freedom, even though that's scary at times. Um, I mean, I've tried my best to to also encourage them to be creative I guess as well and, and you know three of my children actually are creative in different ways but um, you mentioned but, the freedom to make mistakes earlier I mean that's one of the things that's important as a kid too right yeah. well when I was a kid you know I know we were all I was allowed to go out on my bike and ride up and down the hill on yeah. the street and I remember one day when I was probably about seven I fell off and I didn't know at the time I'd broken my arm I tried oh, wow. to hide it for a while because I was embarrassed but then in the end I had to admit and we went to hospital and mm. had a broken arm. And I do worry these days that we we are wrapping the kids up too much in cotton wool and you know, the world isn't as as bad and scary as as it's often made out to be. Mm. Um yeah. so, do you like to so, give your kids more of an opportunity to yeah. experience that? A bit you know, as a kid, I was not. A, I know my mother was was didn't let me climb, for example. And I think we certainly overcompensated on that. So, mm. um, didn't let you climb, like yeah. So like I, 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 my eldest used to climb ridiculously high trees to the point I just got terrified. And mm. so um, I remember talking to my colleague Helen Johnson about this, who's done a bit of climbing, and and she gave me great advice, which is take them to climbing lessons. Yeah, don't stop it, but make them learn get them to learn Proper how to do it properly techniques. safely yeah yeah there's there are really nice uh, climbing centers kind of here in cambridge for example yeah. that are kind of for kids and you can take your kids yeah. there and they have a very nice you know they have a very safe harness system but mm. you know with those harnesses you can learn you know mm. how to do it the mechanics of putting one hand yeah. in one place and one hand in the other yeah. so yeah that's it's good mm. well i'm kind of aware it's almost lunchtime for us, so you know maybe, <laughs> maybe. Um, I w- but I want to make sure you feel happy with our conversation. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything I else? Think like so to... we've covered a huge amount. Yeah, actually. we have. It's, it's been, been great for me as well. Yeah, thank yeah. you. It's been really good. Um, I sometimes like to wrap up with what's something that maybe you uh, haven't loved about your job or don't love about your job, and then followed by something positive, something that you do love about your job. Is there any aspect of it that maybe... What do I not like about my job? Mindless bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Pointless committees. 
Yeah, long um, meetings. And long meetings, committees especially. Um, I do sometimes worry about um, science organisation, you know, has been a wonderful thing at facilitating international collaboration. I'm thinking of things like Woes Cliver for those in the field. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that said, I sense there's a lot of people who very, feel too comfortable, you know, in these talking shops and Sometimes we talk too much rather than doing so. Um, mm. And as you implied, you know, committees can go on for too long. Yeah. Sometimes, I, you know, I just think we need to cut through the nonsense and do things rather than talk about them. Yeah. So, so that drives me mad, mindless yeah. bureaucracy. Yeah, um, I guess where it's tricky is, and I think um, so with Bass, we're trying to figure this out too, is when your goal is we need to promote more kind of cross-center you know, collaboration, then you do end up talking a lot because you're trying to figure out how to do that. You're trying to figure yeah, out. How I, to... You know, that's a great <laughs> example where I think sometimes talking is the wrong approach actually. Mm. And what you need to do is is partly incentivize good behaviour by mm. um, you know a great way to do this is just provide some money for the odd student mm. that is going to be multidisciplinary. You know, that's the only option. People will bid into it. And mm. if you have someone, a PhD student, who's got the time. And is coming in with no preconceptions about working across boundaries, then um, you know that's going to happen, and you'll get talking mm. to people. Um, but also, just create environments that um, where you can't force these relationships, but you can certainly create environments where they're more likely to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but telling, having endless committees, and then telling people they're going to work together, in my experience, never <laughs> works. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it could feel like an uphill uh, battle sometimes. Yeah, mm. for sure. How about something you, you love about your job? Oh, it's, it's easy the creative side and working with people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, postdocs, students, um, undergrads. Sometimes, you know, I, I remember the even the odd undergraduate who perhaps was was less talented, but there was one in particular years ago I, I remember who whose ambition, career ambition, was to get to the Met Office and. You, probably would have said at the start it was a long shot mm. but they did get there and you know this was you know it's so satisfying mm. when you when you you see that um but the people you know i'm here this week working with dave monday mm. someone i haven't mentioned yet yeah they should have you know it's always great fun to visit someone i worked with for many many years who's a wonderful person absolutely very talented and yeah. and, and so i i love that side of the job yeah, yeah, he's a really good person to have around, really good scientifically, and really good just to talk to yeah. as well. Yeah, for sure. As you know, he was the first episode. I keep uh, I mentioned to Dave the other week. I said I probably should have you back on because you know in that very first episode we did not have a real kind of it was it was very very structure free, which is okay. That's that's fine. But uh, like we didn't actually talk about your science very much. Yeah. <laughs> so like we should go back and talk about your science. You were kind of learning you know. how to do it. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. I thought it was a pretty good interview. Oh. I wouldn't. Oh, thanks. I wouldn't be too critical. <laughs> ah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, how are you feeling? Pretty good. Good. Yeah. 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 So all, all happy. All yeah, good. Yeah. I think so. Well, it really was an honor to have you here, and, and thanks again for supporting the the podcast. It's and an absolute pleasure. It's a great. You're doing a great thing. Oh, thank Keep you. Keep <laughs> Thanks. And we are listening. Thanks, David. <laughs> bye. Okay, bye. Ah, great. Well done. Oh, we did it. Yeah. Check it out. Check it out. There you have it, my conversation with Professor David Marshall. Thanks again to Professor Marshall for coming over, spending a few days in Cambridge. It was a really nice uh, opportunity to have you around and have you on the podcast. 
You can find him on Twitter again at dmarshallocean, and you can find uh, his website marshallocean.net. And uh, yeah, okay, I'm uh, at Dan Jones Ocean, and uh, on Twitter, and you can follow the podcast at Climate SciPod on Twitter for updates, and you can also. As we discussed uh, in the intro, you can subscribe on many different platforms. Uh, yeah, okay. So um, we are still on a two-weekly schedule. Uh, I may end up needing to take a little break sometime over the upcoming holidays, but I will let you know about that. Uh, but in the foreseeable future, we are on the two-week schedule. Uh, so yeah, again, thanks for downloading, listening, however you're tuning into this. Uh, and if you don't mind, uh, leave us a review on iTunes uh, especially. That could be really helpful. Um, I, I will read them. I will look at them uh, because I do want to get feedback from my audience, from the folks who are interested in listening. And uh, it also helps us in terms of all the ranking stuff and the things that I don't really care that much about. But, well, I guess it's, it's in the mix. Okay, so uh, take care. I'll talk to you later. 